Daniel, a Brazilian jiu-jitsu coach and player and doer and yep. champion and all-round amazing person at that thing. <laughs> but yep. I think that only goes part of the way to, to sort of tell your story and to describe you and what you're about. Um, do you want to try and maybe just in a couple of minutes <laughs> flesh that initial statement out and give uh, us a Yeah, I guess, uh, thank you very much, first, for the kind words. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I do consider myself sort of primarily, I guess that grappling is the, is the filter and the lens that I see the world through, I guess. Um, and it's a pretty integral part to, to who I am and kind of really at the core of myself. Uh, but I don't, I'm not just purely a grappler or purely a coach. I like to kind of, I kind of have my finger in uh, the pie of many different aspects of that world. So I run tournaments and I run a podcast that, you know, similar to this, talks to lots of different people and sort of explores all of the different facets of that and things outside of jiu-jitsu as well. Um, And then I do commentary. I'm lucky enough to do commentary for for a big um, grappling organization and a big MMA organization. So I get to talk more. Basically, I do a lot of talking about stuff. Uh, And then I have some interests that lie outside of grappling as well that kind of, again, I I still see um, influenced by the grappling, uh, which is with the strength conditioning stuff. So a lot of grip training stuff and um, what would, what I'd, I'd hate to call functional training, but I mean, cause fu- function, functional is uh, by definition, a relative term, you know, functional yeah. for a footballer and functional for a um, sprinter are going to be different things, but functional in the context of grappling. Uh, so I'm interested in strength conditioning, how it pertains to grappling and also sort of the old, style of strength training be it the golden era of strongman and sort of performing strongman in the late 18 and, and early 1900s and then uh, even kind of going back as far to ancient strength training methods and stuff like that mm. it's interesting you mentioned functional fitness right off the bat because it's one two three four five six my sixth point down in my notes here <laughs> um which is functional fitness thoughts <laughs> um because yes it's functional for what you want to do, but I, yep. I also know that you do a lot of varied, let's say, rather than functional um, training with axes, hammers, pulleys, what people would consider strange items that they haven't seen before. Um, and you touched on that there in terms of the grip strength and the, the different grips and using, using your body in different ways, using different things. Mm. There's got to be a crossover from the function of the grappling to yeah. a lot of other things in terms of life and whatever you want to try and do. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I mean, uh, yeah, the stuff that I do is considered very weird to someone who's used to training at a commercial gym. But then if I go to a commercial gym, I find it very weird, the stuff that is there. So to, to me, like a, uh, a uh, fly machine is very, very strange. Whereas a rock or a sandbag is completely the sort of stuff that I'd expect to see in a gym. So it is all relative to, mm. to what we have been conditioned to see. Uh, but yes, I think grappling in general is a very, I mean, grappling, the grappling sort of wrestling, wrestling is this, grappling is just another word for wrestling and wrestling is this ancient form of combat that has existed, you know, arguably one of the earliest forms of combat one of the you know the earliest sport in humanity we were grappling before we realized that we were grappling right we were probably grappling and doing moves that wouldn't be 
completely out of place on the mats of jiu-jitsu gyms today prior to before uh, we were even considered uh, anatomically modern human beings. So it really goes back a long way. And for that reason, I think as a sport, it sort of has every facet of physical um, preparation, speed, cardio, flexibility, power, strength. That That's what the grappler has to have. So I think it's a, you could sort of train as a grappler or train as a wrestler, even if you never want to do that sport, and you'd still find yourself in a really good spot just because it really does cover everything. You're never going to be, you're never going to be a uh, hugely unbalanced. No, it's really interesting about because grappling has to have a really strong grip strength, then it helps. <laughs> and for life, grip strength is a real predictor, a really good predictor for longevity of life and mortality. Massive yeah. crossovers. Yeah, it's interesting. So it's uh, I had this I have this conversation often, but yeah, it's a huge uh, um, uh, it's got a huge correlation for um, all cause mortality. Of course, you have to ask yourself the question: is uh, is it does having a stronger grip mean you live longer, or uh, if you're healthy and therefore going to live longer anyway? Does that give you a stronger grip as you grow older? Uh, and obviously more research needs to be done. I mean, there's more that not only is it correlated very closely to all cause mortality, but it's also correlated to, I saw recently, to uh, to number of number of sexual partners in males, uh, and also age of uh, age of first sexual encounter as a male. Uh, I'm not sure if the research has been done with females there, but but yeah, so some interesting other things. So mm. live longer and have more sex if you have a better grip strength. <laughs> I mean, there's some jokes. No easy way to sell it, right? I mean, you'd think less partners would lead to bigger grip strength. Um, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I love how that's absolutely silenced both of you. <laughs> so, it's a family show. Where do I go with this? Do I want to reveal how much my mind works? Possibly not. Uh, I, I was just thinking which which one of the many thoughts I had was safest to air. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, was jiu-jitsu your, I'm guessing it wasn't your first sport? I you mean, said. for all intents and purposes, I, I would say that it was. Okay. Uh, I, I was never an athletic child. I was never really a sporty child. Um, I think possibly one of the reasons that sports uh, in, 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 in sort of early, I started doing jiu-jitsu when I was about 15, 14, 15 years old. Um, so it wasn't, you know, obviously I wasn't an adult, but I also was, you know, well into my teens, a young man, so to speak. So, uh, I, I, I was never big in the sport beforehand. I think a lot of that is to do with because naturally sort of the sports that you play at school, uh, tend to be team based, which makes sense because you're with a big group of kids and it's very difficult to give the focus uh, to individuals. So you just get them to play team sports and just for some reason, team sports never really gelled with me. So I, I mean, I never played football. I wasn't super into rugby. I played a little bit of hockey, but I wasn't super into it either. Um, and I, I really had no interest in any sort of athletic pursuits in any capacity um, until martial arts came about. But martial arts for me, you know, I, I went through lots of different martial arts before finding jiu-jitsu. And actually a lot of martial arts, you don't necessarily put that connection between athleticism as a sport because a lot of martial arts, more traditional martial arts, don't really have that connection. You're not actually competing uh, and you, therefore you don't need the physicality in the same way. Uh, but then I found jiu-jitsu and, um, you know, that was very much a sport designed as a sport and the physicality was an important part. So 
Yeah, I, I, I would, mm. I would go as far to say that it was the first sport that I ever did with any sort of seriousness. So, okay. Why, why, what happened at that point in your life that you wanted to seek out a thing to do? Did anything happen? Did anything make you want to do that? No, it was just a general interest that I had in martial arts. I think that's a pretty natural, um, a sort of natural interest that, that, that sort of pubescent boys have, probably I'd say from the age of about 11 or 12. I was interested in martial arts, probably watching Dragon Ball Z or something. I was <laughs> interested and I tried, you know, I did a couple of classes of Jake, Jet Kung Do and some karate and some Taekwondo and, you know, a couple of classes of judo and just, 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 I was doing little bits and pieces everywhere and nothing really gelled with me. Nothing grabbed me. And, uh, I started doing, I went to a jujitsu club. It was a Japanese jujitsu club. So only similarity is, is in name. And I was doing that for about four or five months. And again, it was probably the longest that I'd ever done any martial arts, but it, it, I, I wasn't super into it. Uh, but then the instructor there, or one of the instructors had already started training Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and had sort of left behind, you know, you, you get this epiphany when you go from a traditional martial art that is basically not real, quote unquote, mm. uh, to, to a martial art that is real, like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or wrestling or boxing or something like that. You have this epiphany to go, oh, holy shit, I've been wasting my time with this other stuff. This is the, this is the real deal and uh, he had already had that epiphany at that point but he was but he hadn't you know he was just training in the corner whilst everyone else was doing the old rubbish stuff and then one day the mate the other instructor left and and this other guy who'd already started jiu-jitsu took over and uh that and started teaching us brazilian jiu-jitsu and that's when i was grabbed and i've been training there ever since that's really cool mm. so how, how so how long have you been doing jiu-jitsu now Brazilian jiu-jitsu? Uh, knocking on the door of 16 or 17 years. A long time. Okay. It's kind of mad to say that. It makes me feel very old. So you've probably forgotten uh, as much as you've learned. <laughs> Sadly, that's almost certainly the case, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's good. That's class. Yeah. Because it's, it's, a very, it's a growing sport in the UK, isn't it? Massively, yes. Because we're getting... So locally, I, I'm in the southwest near Bath. Yeah. Now, we're getting Gracie Barbera, if I'm saying that right. Um, oh, yeah. Baha just popping up mm -hmm. all around us, where it just seems to be really taking off. Yeah, it is. It, it, it's grown, you know, it's only been on sort of UK shores for around about 20 years. I mean, the sport in terms of being outside of Brazil, you're talking about 30 years, really, that's it. Um, so the sport is incredibly new. Uh, but it has exploded and it's exploded partly because of what it is and, and how fantastic it is. And also massively piggy, piggybacking off of the success of mixed martial arts in which it is, mm. you know, the, the, the UFC and MMA was centered around Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. It was that UFC number one was basically invented to prove how good Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu was. Yeah. Um, and, and to this day, it's still a, a massive facet there. And uh, it, it, it seems to be, especially in the sort of in recent years, it seems to be an incredibly popular sort of fad hobby for celebrities. A lot of celebrities are really getting into jiu-jitsu. Um, and it kind of, it is a lot of fun and it is a, it's pretty addictive when you start it. So it's totally understandable, but then that's only kind of continuing to increase the popularity, which is awesome. 
that, that that's a really good point because myself i became aware of it through listening to podcasts yep um a few years ago so um joe rogan obviously he talks about mma this one yep yeah um but then sam harris Yep. Um, he's, he's doing it. And then, uh, the nonprofit guys, Michael Blevins, um, he was doing some stuff with, uh, was he doing some stuff directly with Roger Gracie or under the, under the banner? Um, very possible. Yeah. A, a, a few years ago. And I was like, Oh, actually this, this sounds cool. Um, let's look into that. And I was like, wow, this, this is, this is, this sounds good. Mm. Um, I'll be honest. It, it didn't lead me down the path of getting involved. Um, mm. But it opened my eyes to the likes of yourself and following other people who are doing it because it's just another form of health and fitness, dare I say, <laughs> albeit maybe on the, the dark art side of <laughs> the clean global gym side. But, you know. Yeah, it's all part of that. It's a, it's a niche within that sort of, yeah, I mean, it, it it depends. Coming from the inside, coming from someone who's sort of, I, I've been doing jiu-jitsu longer than I haven't been doing jiu-jitsu mm-hmm. and the, my entire adult life and everything that I do kind of revolves around it. So for me, it's sort of the epicenter of the entire universe. Um, but yeah, you know, jiu-jitsu is everything in a way and grappling is everything. And it's hard. I, I'm, never, I'm never quite sure whether that's my personal that my philosophy and ideas around jiu-jitsu and grappling is uh so too heavily biased by my own participation and investment within it or whether i truly just happen to be doing the greatest sport in the world <laughs> you know, it's one of those things i'm sure someone who does uh golf thinks i mean golf really is the perfect analogy for life you know and, and, and of course the bias is just there but I feel like with grappling, maybe not. Maybe it really is because, and, and, and sort of a lot of my interest also comes from, or I have a lot of interest in history and mythology and stuff like that and seeing the connections of, um, of wrestling and grappling, how they entwine themselves through many different cultures and through stories and through history. Uh, I find that very interesting. So I do, mm. I do think that even though there is no doubt that I'm heavily biased from my investment and position within the sport i do think uh from trying to be objective i do think that there's something very special about grappling mm, i think I'll sorry, say, sorry yeah, but I, know, I know you want to jump in there but just directly off that and i had a conversation earlier today um, in a gym about how everyone thinks the thing that they do is the thing that everyone should do yes and I say that with with all due respect, because you've just caveated, oh, yeah, yeah, you've, yeah, yeah. you absolutely caveated that with the the objectivity and the you've thought about it, yeah. You've understood the reasons why you feel like that, but I think a lot of people these days don't have that <laughs> self awareness or the additional thought and self awareness to caveat yeah. and back up what they're saying because they're like my thing is the thing everyone should be doing. And it's yep. generally because they're trying to sell that thing to other people. So they're trying to sell it as the panacea and the red mm-hmm. pill, the holy grail. Whereas I think people who are <laughs> more aware, mm-hmm. this is the thing I do, but I also acknowledge that other people do other things and they're good too. Mm. And maybe 
we can all just <laughs> melt together and pick up bits from each other and oh, yeah. move forward like that rather than this is my thing, everything else is shit. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I caveat what I say, as I said before, that it's very possible that this because of my bias. But I also, <laughs> being self-aware and aware of that, yeah. I do... I it's do still brilliant. It's, and everyone I, I, still should do it. Yeah. It's very possible that grappling is the greatest point in the world. Yeah. So, so, so with the second, the caveat on top of the caveat, I think it's brilliant. That's probably because I'm biased. But actually, even with that in mind, I still think it's the best. But. Yeah. So Carl, Carl Stedman, the um, CrossFit affiliate manager for the United Kingdom. Um, he says the same thing about CrossFit. Um, but he does, he does caveat the, that he's <laughs> in a very, in, no, honestly, what you just said was very similar yeah. to the way in which he, <laughs> he, he, he put his marker down for CrossFit. Oh, I'd um, love to, I'd love to argue against someone who thinks CrossFit is more important than grappling. <laughs> let's, um, let's make it happen. No, no, let's make it happen though. Yeah. So, so maybe the question should be, why is it the best sport in the world? Because actually, yeah. there's one thing making a statement. It's quite another thing to then justify it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, I, and I have no doubt you will do. Yeah. I mean, I, I, think, I think there's a lot of facets that go into it. I think that looking at it purely as a sport, I, I think that it's an excellent analogy for many things in life. And we actually use that. And I, I think that there are certain other things um, that share an equal sort of uh, ancestral and sacred without um, sounding too much like liver king or something. Unfortunately, <laughs> I like to talk about uh, sort of anthropology a lot, but he's kind of ruined it for me. Um, but, but I think that there are other hobbies and there are other pastimes or whatever you want to call it. There are other activities that hold a sort of special reverence in humanity. Um, I think that you can make a really arg a good argument for things like running, even though I hate running. So any praise that I give of running is very much the opposite of, uh, of, of, of grappling, grappling, which I do in love and would be biased in one way. Running, I don't do and I absolutely hate. So if I give praise to that, you know that there's no bias at all. Uh, and, and then other things such as, I mean, hunting is something that is very much that as well, where that, and, and that's, I mean, a totally separate subject, something that I've only done for the first time ever last week literally um so funny time to be chatting to me uh but that's something that i've been interested for for the same sort of reason that um it's something that goes back for hundreds of thousands of years yeah. it's something that is deeply ingrained in every culture on the planet and and the interesting thing about grappling wrestling and stuff like hunting is actually the vernacular that we use in life as well you may you say you say you know you're you're hunting for something completely out of the context of uh, stalking animals and in the same way that you may wrestle with the decision or you may grapple with a problem and and I think just uh, that the, the idea of it is something that it's something that's very true to humanity I think that mm. if you there, there's there's a great quote I believe it's Ricky Gervais uses to argue against atheism or argue against uh, dogmatic uh, monotheistic religions where he says if we were to wipe every single you know if humanity was to basically press restart then all of the holy books would come out differently because they're made up that would be the idea uh however um science you know the law of you know gravity and the the the, the laws of physics would all be remained the same because they are inherent truths that are stitched into the fabric of the universe and i think that that same idea is true of grappling 
I think that you could erase every sport, every knowledge, every person. And if you were to restart human beings from the get-go, then you would still have, uh, I mean, you might, you might not have football and you might not have basketball and you might not have CrossFit, you know, not, not to throw any shade over there. Uh, but, but, you know, you might not have these things, but I think that you'll have wrestling and I think that you'll have forms of grappling because I believe just like the laws of physics are stitched into the fabric of the universe, I think that the ideas and the movements and the concepts of wrestling are stitched into the fabric of humanity. Yeah, I, so, to- uh, I, I totally agree. And I think, I think the reason for that is because <clears throat> evolution is slower than society's development. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So the, going back to the hunting thing, and I've actually become really interested in hunting since reading a book last year. Um, what what book was it? You can't throw big claims like that out without uh, <laughs> quoting the book. Do you remember? So yes, it's, it's a book called Exercised, and I've talked yes, about it before. Da- by Daniel, Daniel Lieberman. Lieberman. Yeah. yeah, it's fantastic. I, Great I, book. Yeah. I just, it changed the way I viewed certain things, and I've, I've started to look into a lot of things that I would not even consider and yeah. I think just in terms of hunting, it's Lane Norton. Um, yep. Do you know Lane Norton? Um, yep. So I've started following a lot of the things that he does. And I think in a way what you have to do is set aside any opinions you have because especially nowadays, the whole vegan animal welfare type things. We won't get onto that. I know, exactly. I don't want to dismiss them as things. <laughs> because it's the people's feelings and the way people think about things. Sure. But just boiling it down to the reasons for doing that and the skill of the hunt and the mental and physical side of things, not even thinking about society now, they're, they're skills which we all have inherently yeah like and i think i think grappling and fighting and survival because it all comes down to survival doesn't it that's the word that is the the root of these things is survival Mm. and well i mean just look at children if you have siblings you tend to wrestle with each other yep it's that getting that dominance isn't it it happens at a young age i mean i remember doing it with my dad i didn't have siblings at the time and it was we wrestled yeah and he hated it when I started to get stronger and could beat him. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas you're like, fucking get in. Yeah, absolutely. Because now you're having to get angry to beat me and you can't. Yeah. And now that's a, a bit more dominance. And it, it's, it's, a, it's an alphaism, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's definitely a big part of that of, uh, you know, we, we, we don't really look at that in, in, in when we're training, when we're doing that. But that is the reality. And you kind of have to put your ego aside when you do it. But, but yeah, I mean, if we weren't doing it in a sort of friendly way in, in a sport and we were, you would use gra- grappling because obviously you have grappling and you have fighting, which would be involving strikes, be it stand-up striking or strikings on, on the ground like you'd see in MMA. But the issue with striking in any capacity is, um, is, is, is the brain damage. You know, it's, it's mm-hmm. really, it, you, cannot, you cannot win a boxing match without hurting someone. I mean, actually hurting someone, even one jab to the head, even it may knock them, not knock them down. It might not knock them out. It might not even hurt them or give them a headache. It's doing actual damage to the brain, every knock that you take. So grappling is a way of being able to 
have complete control. This is something you can't have in boxing. You can't have in any striking art. The, the, only, the only way that you could interact with your opponent is through a strike. You cannot interact with them in any way that is less violent than an attack. Whereas with grappling, you can do some viciously violent things such as, I mean, you could kill someone if you got them in a choke and you didn't want to let go, they would die. I mean, it, it, it is as simple as that. But on top of that, you could maim them. You could break their arms. You could break their legs. You could break their spine in, 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 in some very nasty positions that we have. Um, but, but also you can, you can use grappling in a way that, 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 that gives no harm, a pure control of sort of this oxymoron of, of, of violent but gentle at the same time. And that's what jiu-jitsu means. It, it means the gentle art. And uh, it can, it's sometimes ironic because it can be anything but, uh, but, but when you compare it to striking, any sort of striking sport or even striking with grappling, uh, it just, you cannot implement any techniques from a striking art without doing damage. Going back to, I suppose, the thread that we've been talking about in terms of evolution and where things have come from, um, where, where did grappling come from in terms of the sport of? Yeah, because we talked about it in terms of survival and uh, yes. defending yeah. a property and whatever. But in terms of the sport, yeah, great question. So basically, I I, I really like to use the term grappling. I actually don't use jiu-jitsu or Brazilian jiu-jitsu that much because for me, grappling is the overarching umbrella that every style of wrestling, be it judo, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, catch wrestling. Uh, submission wrestling all of these different things kind of fall under the banner of grappling so grappling is this the the idea of uh, combat and controlling an, a, a resisting opponent without the use of striking and uh you know i have no doubt that that was it's very hard to get any you know it's very hard to get any records of um how humans acted in terms of that sort of thing um from prior to recorded history which you're talking about what you know mesopotamia you know, 5,000, 6,000 years ago. Uh, so, but, but, but every, I have no doubt, and, you know, any, any anthropologist will agree that we were grappling long before that and probably prior to us being humans, as I mentioned earlier. In terms of it being actually recorded and structured, all of these ancient cultures, so ancient Greece and Egypt, and you can see, you know, paintings on vases and, you know, hieroglyphs of people grappling and wrestling with each other in whatever individual form that they have wrestling is very much uh it's very much like a language um it's a physical language it's this it kind of goes back to this whole thing of it is innately within us if you put two humans on different sides of the planet and they you know create a community they will speak because that is part of what humans do and they will speak in their own unique ways because they have no connection with each other um and i think grappling is the same that if you put two human you know brand new human societies on different parts of the planet they will wrestle and they will grapple and they will create their own styles and they will be completely dissimilar but they will have some connection because of course they're still humans grappling so uh that's essentially what happened and at one point every culture every society would have had their own unique folk style of grappling so and and and, and a lot of that a lot of that died out and it's actually very similar to another thing that we may get on to talking about later which would be stone lifting and, and 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 another interest that i have and how uh and how 
it's a very similar idea. So my connection with the, the but we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about that later. But the majority of these folk styles have died out because as humanity progresses, we no longer need that. And it's not maybe not valued in society as much as it used to be. So we're left with, I mean, the UK had loads. I mean, us in the UK had a huge number of folk style, unique folk mm. style lessons. We go back to languages. I mean, we might be the most diverse eclectic mix of dialects throughout a very very small space on this island that we inhabit yet we have insanely different uh you know we we all sound insanely different even if you travel a uh, 50 miles away and it's very similar we had we had uh folk styles of wrestling all over the place uh, be it in wales or ireland or, or 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 in the north or in the south loads of different styles different rules different uniforms and stuff like that um so yeah, some of them are still knocking about, holding on by a thread, and others will have been lost to time entirely. It is interesting because when you were talking about the, you know, two groups of people placed on opposite side sides of the world, and they'll develop their own style of grappling, wrestling, whatever it is. I thought of language, yeah, because that <laughs> you could have in, you could have actually just used the word language. They will have developed their own form of communication and language. I, I did, I did use the form language, didn't I? Yep, you did. did yeah, you, you did. A little, you did in the context of the UK and dialect. no, 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 no. You, around the world. Sorry, yeah, I used it before. Yeah, okay. I, no, no, I no but but, yeah. but but I mean to clarify on that, you're yeah. absolutely right because I've never had, I've never made that connection before. Mm. Uh, but as I was saying that, and you thought language, I thought language at the same time, and you're right, and 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 that's what it is. I think it's. It, I think grappling is the. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of having epiphanies here as I check this. That's why I like doing podcasts. <laughs> yeah, go for it. Um, because, uh, you know, I think that, that, that grappling is the expression of physical language in, in, in its purest form. And I mm. think that the closest that you can make, and well, it goes back to something that we were talking a little bit earlier, um, which is another, I mean, maybe you guys can pick up on what I'm getting to here, but something that is inherently very human. And again, going back to Daniel Lieberman, story of the human body exercised, so an activity that is essentially very human. Everyone does. Any ideas? Expression Die. of human. Gone. Die. Death. Nope. No. No. no, okay. no. We have no choice in that. Culturally, no. everyone does it. We do it differently. It's like a language. It's like an expression of human creativity. Dance. Exactly. Yeah. Dance. You know. Yes. So. 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 And. And. But then again, when we talk about dance, yeah. um, I think that there are a lot of connections between grappling and dance right when well, you say yeah. it's a dance you know you're 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 uh, and 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 when dancers sometimes dance with each other you use it you use vernacular of their fighting or wrestling and when mm. wrestlers wrestle with each other very often very often or fighters fight against each other it's seen as a as a dance as well yeah it's well, really interesting yeah well capoeira is the expression of that isn't that's the link between <laughs> the the traditional dance and the martial art dance yeah. Yeah, you must find when you have wrestled, grappled, played, whatever, against people from different parts of the world, you know they're going to come with a certain potential star. You see it in other sports. So different football nations will have different styles. It's unique or inbred in the way that they do things. And it must be the same with the movements you have. It, it, it is and it isn't. I mean, the, the big difference is, of course, 
uh, that we we don't we live on on very much live on one planet right now, opposed to um, I mean even fifty years ago pre-internet. Mm. But if we go back hundreds of years ago or thousands of years ago, when people weren't even aware that we existed, so um, because we have. You know, I watch a, a video of someone grappling in one country and everyone else in the world still has access to that. So grappling is a lot more, um, the entropy has happened in terms of the particular styles. There sure. will be some slight similarities in that, you know, Brazilians may do this slightly more and Americans kind of come, but it's more of how they are influenced by their culture opposed yeah. to the sport itself being very different stylistically and also the fact that brazilian jiu-jitsu um is so new i mean it, it, it it's a sport that his that is younger than the internet which is a very and and you know the sport has kind of exploded alongside the explosion of social media so uh yeah it would be so interesting if uh, brazilian jiu-jitsu was a bigger thing um uh 50 years Please. ago but then yeah. of course but then, of course, the sort of uh, international nature of the world is one of the reasons why everyone's doing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in the first place. So it, it, it's sort of a hypothetical that never could have actually happened. Yeah, it's, it, it's, it's one of those, the world is smaller now. Yeah, I mean, so what the, 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 the thought experiment, which would have been super interesting, is you take someone from a, and you could still do this today, but they would have an idea they'd be able to prepare, whereas they wouldn't have been mm. able to in the past. But you could take a Mongolian bok wrestler, you know, the, the traditional style of Mongolian wrestling, and you could put them against a uh, Irish collar and sleeve wrestler, you know, or something like that. You could mm. put a uh, Icelandic, they do this style of belt wrestling, and you could put them against a sumo wrestler or a style of judo, for example, from Japan. So, you, you know, you could still find the separate styles, folk styles, and that what it would be like uh, prior to uh, prior to the internet and sort of everyone becoming one big, uh, one big style in jiu-jitsu or grappling. But the, those communities still exist out there, though, if you think of... These, these remote Amazonian communities, um, Papua, people in Papua New Guinea, all different places, they will have a style of doing wrestling or fighting yeah. or they, they will have a thing that is largely untouched. Yeah, I, I mean, to be honest with you, it's a really great question. Not to my knowledge, um, I, don't, I think that the, the hunter and gathering societies that we still have uh i'm not aware of any folk style of wrestling that is popular mm. amongst those communities that i'm aware of some like the hadza or uh yeah. or, or hunter gathering tribes in in places like papua new guinea i'm not aware of that but mm. uh i mean it's very possible that there is some sort of uh integration into their society and culture with it but you do have places that aren't quite assimilated to the international sort of the rest of the world in places like Mongolia, in the grassland, in the steppes, in places like in Africa, there are still some, 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 uh, some areas that really highly prize their traditional folk style of wrestling. So yeah, it is interesting to, 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 to think um, whether they might just be a little bit too small and a little mm. bit focused on where their next meal is going to come from to worry too much about because because sort of the thing with wrestling is it is innately human and it, i do think it will develop in any society but there needs to be enough uh in order for that 
just you know fighting very uh utilitarian sort of functional to 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 fight for that to become a folk style of sport it needs to have a level of comfort and a a big enough community to allow that to happen but it's a really interesting question it's quite tribal though isn't it i would imagine i'm making assumptions but i would imagine the origins yeah are, are tribes coming together and fighting for dominance yeah, I think a lot of them, uh, a lot of styles that would have been, I think it would have been uh, what what wrestling is and, and how it differs from traditional warfare, be it with uh, bows and arrows or clubs or knives or whatever, is that it, it, it's, it's a lot more friendly. So you can yeah. still have a, you can have a rivalry and you can mm. send out your best wrestler and you can go, we're going to wrestle. Both of these guys will be able to go home to their families afterwards. Nobody's going to die today, but through an expression of our tribe's power, we can uh, settle a dispute or take land or do whatever we need to decide without there being any bloodshed. Um, So, I mean, again, it it reminds me, and I think it's one of the reasons why I find the the stone lifting so interesting. Mm. It reminds me of, uh, of, of a lot of stone lifting you know, they, they would use stone lifting as a style of um, to, to, to a lot of places to settle arguments or to prove who was the strongest. And um, so there's a lot of similarities between the two. Some of my favorite videos on YouTube are the Rogue, is the yes, Rogue series. Of the, of the three, yeah. yeah, with the Scottish stones, the Icelandic ones and the Basque region. Yeah, the, oh, the, I, the, I, the Ventadors, yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely amazing. And they are so strong. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that I have a connection in, in Basque country and I'm hoping to get there. Um, I've been fortunate enough to travel to Scotland and left a lot of stones there. And uh, yeah, I want to get out to Basque country and, and do some of that. They have such an interesting style, such a unique style of stone lifting over there. Mm. It's amazing. And, and then hopefully one day get to Iceland yeah. as well. There's a lot of technique involved. Yeah, with the there? style that they use, it's... With their Basque and the shapes they, they, they make. They, they just... Uh, yeah, it's very interesting because they have a unique style of stone lifting where they don't lift natural stones. They sometimes do, but the majority of their stone lifting are through these carefully, very, you know, geometrically crafted, um, very unique looking stones or not unique because they carved them to to all look the same, but, uh, (laughs) but, but unique in the sense of anywhere else on the planet, nobody lifts stones like they do in Basque country. It's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And they're lifting heavy, heavy, 130 oh i mean i mean 40 oh i i mean 130 140 would be kind of medium weight for a very a natural stone lifted in the natural style yeah Uh, some of the some of the stuff that they do over there i mean you're talking about 300 kilo stones that they put on their shoulder it's crazy i mean properly next level loads of technique a really interesting style the leverage that they create um it's so interesting i can't wait to get out over there and sort of pick their brains a little bit that's my so i hope i hope dan you're gonna do a similar thing that you did in scotland in terms of the uh the video diary yeah. because I think it's a good point to move on to that because it's naturally yeah. sort of led to that. Yeah, let's um, that yeah. So the Stones and Strangles um, yes. series, eight eight videos you did. I think um, it might be seven or eight, yeah. Is it seven or eight, yeah. yeah. Um, I loved them. Um, I think Thank they you. were great. And it wasn't just about lifting the stones and the... I'll be, I'll be honest, I will be totally honest here. 
I wasn't that bothered <laughs> so much about the um, the workshops that you did. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'll be totally honest because um, it, it's it's not my bag. It's not not necessarily my thing. What I did like though is I think the production values and the way it was shot was absolutely fantastic. Um, yes, I thought yeah. it just looked really good, and also it actually told a story that was beyond why you were there. Yeah. And that's what really pulled me in in terms of the, the history, the communities, the myths and the legends, the, the reason why the stones are just sitting in people's front gardens, mm. <laughs> which I thought was absolutely fantastic yeah. that people come from all around to lift a stone that is just sitting in the front of someone else's front garden in the uh, back end of Scotland. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> I suppose one of my questions here is kind of, why are the stones there are they there because people can't move them anywhere else <laughs> yeah i mean firstly thank you very much you, you know stones and strangles was a was a it was just i mean i was going up to scotland to do a load of um jiu-jitsu seminars and i thought i'm traveling literally all around in a big circle around scotland um I, why don't i just go and lift the stones whilst i'm doing it and then yes. I thought, this is going to make for a really cool trip. So I spoke to a friend of mine who was a videographer. He'd never done anything like this before and said, can you come and did it? I mean, he did a fantastic job. It, it was just beautifully shot. Um, but it was the first sort of long form. Uh, we didn't know whether it was going to be one 20-minute episode. We didn't know it was going to be one hour. or And then it ended up being this mini series. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it, 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 if I was to do it again, I probably won't have the jujitsu content in the uh, episodes. I think I'll make it more about kind of gloss over that uh, stuff a little bit more and maybe release that stuff separately. Cause I think you're right. It, it, it there's a bit of a, uh, you know, some people are there for the jujitsu and the stone stuff mm. might bore them, but most people are there for the stones, the jujitsu stuff might bore them. So, but we're planning to do, uh, we are planning to do much more seasons of that. Um, and, and the and, Scottish scenery as well. I, I will just, just gorgeous. I mean, it's gorgeous. Yeah. Um, I just came back from there a couple of weeks ago and it is stunning. Always never ceases to, 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 you know, leave me in awe. Uh, but yeah, the stones is, is a really interesting. That is, you know, you kind of picked up on why I find the stones interesting. And there's a lot of connection between them and um, a lot of the reasons why I like grappling as well. I think they really go hand in hand with each other. There's so many similarities. I only touched on them when we were talking about grappling, but to answer your question of why the stone's there, I mean, they're certainly not there because they can't be moved. They can all be moved if they wanted to, or, you know, a lot of the stones will be in a, you know, they'll be in a big heap of other stones, but this mm. stone is special. And, um, and, and, and this different stones have different histories and different stones have different meanings and different countries. It, it's very similar to folk wrestling because, at one point in time, every culture in the world would have lifted stones in order to test themselves and to make themselves stronger because, I mean, that's all they had laying around. Mm. Um, but most cultures that died out and in few cultures, it stuck around, you know, like in Iceland, like in Bass, like in uh, Scotland and uh, Sweden and Norway, Scandinavia have a lot of them. And uh, Japan actually has quite a lot of them as well that I didn't know until recently. So hopefully a Stones and Strangles in, in Japan as well is coming soon. That would be and, cool. Uh, yeah, I'm super excited for that, to be honest with you. <laughs> cool. um, but yeah, so, so different countries. I mean, just to give you some ideas. So running through the Scottish Stones, a lot of them were, um, you know, some of them were clan stones. So there's a stone sitting outside Castle Kenzie. And... Um, 
and that was to test, you know, that's to test your strength. If you want to be part of the clan, you want to be considered a man, then you had to be able to lift this stone. Other stones, the 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 stone, the little stone that we found, we didn't find the big one in the Glen Kiosh uh, lifting site. It was just a historical area where during the Jacobite rebellion, when the Scots were rebelling against the English, all of the clans, all of the tribes got together and they drunk and they partied and they lifted stones because, you know, that's what you do when you're having a good time. Throw some stones around, show that you're, you're stronger than the, uh, than the clan from down the street. And therefore the stones in this area were stones that they would have used in, you know, 300 years ago. And we go and lift those stones and we keep that history going. You know, you had the Braven stone, which is the stone that is part of this, uh, that's in this ruin of a churchyard. And it was used as a punishment um, if you see the stones, you know the one I'm talking about. But there's a mm. there's this concrete above ground yeah. grave, and if you committed a crime, you'd lay in this grave with just your head exposed. This big slab would be placed yeah. over yeah. your body, yeah. and then the Braven stone would be put on top of the slab to to secure you in, and yeah. you'd just be stuck uh, in this grave above ground with everyone kind of walking past and spitting on you and pissing on you and whatever else they wanted to do to you uh, whilst you enacted your punishment. So there's, you know, there, there's different reasons for different ones. And then when you go further afield, I, I mean, in Scotland, they're mainly testing or they just have history. Um, if you go to Iceland, a lot of them are tied to, to mythology, which I find so interesting because mythology is something that interests me a lot in terms of, you know, for example, there's a stone, there's a story of a, one of the stones in Scotland that the story goes that this farmer who was kind of down on his luck um, and, and was kind of praying, I need a good harvest. I need, you know, I want some, you know, fame, you know, I want fortune. I want to do well in life. And the devil hears him and he comes to, because of course the, the Iceland's a really interesting place because they had, they, you know, deeply entrenched in the North uh, religion, pagan religion. And then Christianity came in and they, and they and turn the entire island Christian, but then they, they kind of have this, they still have this spiritual side from the old Norse paganism as well. So, so the devil comes and he says, um, he says, I'll, 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 you know, I'll give you a harvest and I'll make you rich. All you have to do is pick up that stone, but if you can't do it, then I'll take your soul, you know, classic devil trick. And the farmer's thinking, I'm a, I'm a big, strong farmer. I've worked the land all my life. I'm going to be able to pick up the stone. No problem. So he agrees, but he goes to pick up the stone. But of course, the devil being the devil holds the stone from underneath to stop him from lifting it. He can't lift it. And then the, the devil takes his soul. Uh, so the priest nearby hears about this and he's very upset. And he goes to talk to the devil and he says, you know, this is, this is really not on what you're doing. A lot of shenanigans here. So the devil says, okay, fine, I'll come to an agreement. If you can carry this stone round the grave a hundred times, then I will release his soul um, up into heaven. And so people go and they and they they lift this stone and they try and walk it. And it's a very heavy stone. I think it's in the high hundreds, maybe even 200 and something kilos. And you sort of bear hug it and you try and walk it around this, 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 this grave. Um, and, uh, I don't even think they've got to the hundred yet. So you can travel out to Scotland and actually be part of this kind of the myth. The end of the story has not been told yet. Mm. And you can help release the, uh, the old farmer from, from hell into heaven. Uh, so it's very interesting. A lot of the, the myths around the Icelandic stones. And then in Japan, 
one of the interesting things of researching about Japanese stones, and you have sort of the 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 standard lifting lifting stones that the sumos were using to get strong, but then you have a lot of prayer stones as well or wishing stones, and how they would work is like you go to the temple, they're all in shrines and stuff, and you'd make a wish or you'd ask a question. And then you would lift the stone, and if the stone felt heavier than what you thought it would, then uh, that then then it wouldn't come true, or it would be a no. And if it felt lighter than uh, than you thought it would, then it's a yes, or uh, your your wish will be granted. So again, that the 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 tie in between spiritualism and religion and stones is really interesting to me. Mm. There's a real depth to them, isn't there? It's not a shallow thing. They are deeply rooted in history. Yeah, and it depends on the individual stone. You know, there's there's people out there who are discovering stones and purely theorizing what their 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 purpose may have been, and uh, and and some people who are creating stones that are starting their history from scratch. So each individual one has a different history and the beauty of them. I, I mean, I think a lot of the power of a, of, of anything comes from the reverence that other people give it, whether it, whether it's been around for a long time or, or not. I, I mean, I, 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 something that I have in my head that I want to do um, at some point is, is actually write a book about stone lifting and, sort of what I discovered from it because I got into it just because I just wanted to lift some heavy stuff because it would be cool. And then as I sort of started going on these journeys and researching and, you know, the trip that I did around Scotland to lift stones was, it, it, it was a lot more than just physical. It, it did feel very spiritual and, and there was a lot more significance. And, and then again, the more reverence you give to something, the more it gives back to you. So I think the, uh, the idea of, stones being sacred and, and and sort of the animist belief of spirits within them has a really interest in because stones you know we talk about stones i talk about specifically stones that are there to be lifted but of course stones in general are something that go back you know a really long time and a really interesting part of humanity as we have megaliths like stonehenge or we have things that are carved in stone or we have sacred stones pebbles in india that that, that are seen as gods or manifestations of, of spirits and stuff like that so there's a lot of interesting mm. things and stuff about it i think i think for me this the story <clears throat> the story around the stones is the most interesting yeah rather than the stone and the ability to lift it I'll, yeah I'll I, be honest. I, I mean abs- absolutely i uh, the, the stone itself is uh the stone is it's a, and, and and I think that's the beauty of it. Mm. I mean, you say it almost like it's a like it's a contra like you you know you're trying to be careful what you say not to offend yeah. anyone. But 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 actually, that is the beauty of the stone. The whole point of it is that without the history, without the reverence, without people going there and lifting it, it is just a stone. The whole planet is made of them. You can find them anywhere. I mean, they get stuck in the in in in, in the tread of your boot. You know, it's it, it means nothing, mm. but this thing that means nothing can mean everything because of its history. And I think it's uh, that 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 is the juxtaposition between the stone over there is you know, you, you know, no offense to the stone is nothing, but the stone here next to it is a historical stone that people will literally fly across the world to have mm. a chance of lifting, and that is what makes it special. Yeah, absolutely, and I think. For me, having watched that series in Scotland, the, the, the one that sort of sums that up is the, is the Inverstone um, mm. with June. Mm. Um, 
it's just in a front garden. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. This stone and she, God rest her soul now, because she did die, didn't she? Uh, last year, the Sh- Shortly after I saw her, yeah, a yeah. couple of months after. Um, she was just lovely. <laughs> oh, she was, <laughs> she was amazing, yeah. She was, and, she, yeah, go on. And, sorry, I was just going to want to say in terms of, she was just happy that people came and had a chat. I got the impression, mm. Mm. regardless of why they were there. I think she would have been quite happy for people just, oh, there, okay, well, you're the stone person. You're, you, you have the stone. I don't, I don't care about that. Can I have a cup of tea? Can we just have a chat? Mm. And I think that was lovely. And I think that human element of the fact that she, she, she knew that she was the custodian of the stone, but that it wasn't about that. It was about the human connection for me mm. and the fact that people came by and she was there and she could gain something from talking to them and having that experience, which I think maybe, sorry, I'm, I'm going quite deep here, but maybe transcends the physical effort of lifting the stone. Yeah, you know, I couldn't agree with you anymore. And I was lucky enough to, to meet June. For me, June is part of that stone, you know, and the, the stone will forever be a different thing uh, post-June post being the custodian of it. Mm. And in the same way that a regular stone becomes something special through its history, a regular person can become something special also through their history. And I think I can speak on behalf of the hundreds of people who went to Inver uh, to, to, uh, to, to lift June stone and sit down and sign her book and have a tea with her you know, they would say the same, that you would treat, you know, this little old lady who was absolutely the absolute most sweetest person you could ever meet. But she was like a celebrity to, to, to stone lifters. You know, it was as much a, it was my honor to go and to go and see her and speak to her and, and listen to her stories, mm. as I'm sure it was nice for her to have people drop in to see her as well. People weren't. Yeah, I think. Uh, yeah, she she was a massive part of that. And yeah. It is. It, it does transcend purely the physical. It is part of the entire thing, and that's kind of what. That's what I felt unexpectedly. I didn't go in to. I, I. I mean, I guess I did begin to. As soon as you start, I always say to people: if you plan to go and lift stones, don't just find the location and head up there uh, with a picture of it to find. Learn about it because you have to give. You have to internalize the importance and the history of the stone before you attempt it to understand what you're doing. It's like anything. I, I mean, this is something, and again, we are going completely deeper into something, uh, you know, m- m- far different from lifting or strength condition or anything like that. But it's context is so important with everything, right? In the same way that a song sounds better when you heard the story behind it, right? Mm-hmm. Or or in this case, a stone is, 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 it feels different and looks different. And the aura is different when you know the history around that, or, you know, a, 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 an ancient coin is different when you understand where it's been and, 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 and so on and so forth. The context yeah. is so important and it transcends the purely physical. It becomes a living thing. It does. Yeah. Uh, and your interaction with it should leave it, in a better place than you found it sort of thing a hundred percent yeah and, and and i do believe that that every time that the beauty of 
stones is that you get to interact with history in the way that it was always interacted with. Yeah. So it would be a, like, you know, imagine going into, uh, it would be the equivalent of going into a museum and uh, picking up a sword and hacking an enemy to death with it, you know? <laughs> it, 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 you know, that's what it was used for and that's what it wants to do and that's the spirit that is in the sword, but you can't do that or no. go into a, and fly a, a hundred-year-old aeroplane or something like that. But with these stones, you can go and you can lift them and you kind of become part of that and you leave a little bit of your spirit there and I think the stone leaves a little bit of its spirit with you as well. Well, they're tactile, aren't they? You can feel it. You can sense it. It's not an abstract thing. It is very real. Mm. When you pick it up, you can feel its weight. You can feel its history. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. But I suppose <laughs> you could pick up any stone the same weight and still have the same physical effort, yes. but you wouldn't have... Like Paul said, you wouldn't have that mental connection to the history and you wouldn't have the, the fact that you were doing something that is historic and other people have done over the years. Yeah. It's emotional, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. It, it, it is, and, 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 and that's what it did. It felt very spiritual when I was doing it. And um, I think a big part of that as well is when you journey to something. Mm. So, so the equivalent, I was talking to someone else about this. You can do a 200 kilo deadlift in your garage. And I could do a 200 kilo deadlift in a pure gym around the corner. And they would both be very comparable. They're essentially the same thing, but there's not, there's nothing inherently special about it. The equivalent would be there is a 200 kilo bar, uh, sitting on a lifting platform in, uh, a mountain somewhere in Scotland. And the only way that you could lift 200 kilos was to go and to lift this one bar and that this bar was special. And you know that if you have lifted, you've done the bar, I've done the bar. I did the journey. I flew over there. I got the car. I drove up. I, I hiked up to the peak and I grabbed onto the same bar as everyone who's grabbed onto before me. And now we are part of this, you know, this, this elite group that has done this thing. It's a pilgrimage. It is a pilgrimage. Yes, exactly that. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and that's again, something that is, uh, where I see the connection with the grappling as well. When you travel somewhere to compete, um, and that could be, you could be traveling to Birmingham or you could be traveling to, um, Brazil, or you could be traveling to Japan, uh, both of which I've been very fortunate to, to, to be part of. And there is something, and especially when you go with a group, um, it becomes even more, it is a journey. And I think the idea of the pilgrimage, it turns something from purely physical. I'm not just jumping on a plane and hopping over there. Mm. It is all part, the, the actual competing starts when I begin my entire journey to get there. And in fact, when I have the thought process and yeah. the idea or the invitation to do it. Yeah, it's the fact that you make the decision to do that, that's when it starts, yeah. And I suppose my question there would be, does that make the physical effort harder or easier? Um, good question. I don't think, I don't think that, that question is relevant. I don't think it makes a difference at all. I don't yeah. think, I don't think uh, you know, it, 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 there's a lot more variables in terms of the actual yeah. task at hand. I, I could only imagine that it would make it, I mean, 
saying that, it, it definitely makes it easier. I mean, if I had to pick between one or two, it definitely makes it easier because you just commit yourself to it a lot more. Mm. The stuff that makes uh, it harder is that the journey can take it out of you. The long drive can take yeah. it out of you. You don't have anything. You're in a field. You know, you've got nothing to warm up with. I've got a little rubber band. You do this a few times. You stretch a little bit and then you go and pick it up. So that can make it harder. But um, if you were to be equally warm and you would have one stone here and one stone there. But, you know, if you wanted to get real uh, hippie about it, you know, you could say maybe it makes it harder because maybe that that stone doesn't want to be lifted, you know, as the Japanese uh, would say with mm. their uh, sort of spiritual belief on the stone, maybe the stone's going to make itself heavier because the wish isn't going to come true. So it goes both ways that the internally you're going to put more into it. Um, and then maybe if you, if you're that way inclined to believe that maybe the stone decides how heavy it's going to feel for you. Yeah. Yeah. It was just a, an interesting thought that I had talk, thinking about the, the, the journey mm. being as much a part as the actual act yeah. itself and maybe the journey takes it out of you so you get to the act and you yeah, oh, shit this is this is too much this is like I've, I've invested in this i've actually physically invested cash in this i've invested yeah. time in this and so we're talking emotion, yeah psychology sports psychology there aren't we yeah yeah, yeah we are uh, and where you are in terms of your state of arousal are you over aroused because you pump this up but this is this is the this is the tournament this is the place to go yeah. i'm overawed i'm too hyper that's it all managers dissipated mm. and it's finding that sweet spot but but i guess it just mm. depends on on your viewpoint and your experience yeah absolutely but yeah i, I think uh you're always going to work harder i think if um but but saying that you know the journey is a massive part of it and i would never I would prefer to have to travel 500 miles to find the stone uh, instead of having that stone brought to me. Yeah. You know, because even though that stone would still be as special, uh, you, you miss out on a lot of, you know, like, like, I, like I, uh, I went on a hunt the other day and I actually, I hunted for two days last week, my first ever hunt and uh we were stalking deer and i didn't kill anything and that that's okay because that's not what it was about um and i remember when we first went out um just as sort of the sun was starting to set or not as, as everything was starting to cool down a little bit it was super hot and uh as we went out and i think we spotted the first deer after maybe half an hour i was thinking i hope i hope i don't kill this deer because i haven't I haven't done enough yet. You know, <laughs> I haven't, yeah. I haven't put it in yet. I can't, you can't just walk out and have a five, a, a, you know, a, a 20 minute stroll and then boom, you got what you were looking for. So, uh, I mean, the, the opposite ended up happening and it was uh, eight hours over two days and we didn't get anything, but it means that sort of my, when I eventually do get the, my first kill, that is already the journey that's happened to get there. So it's a big part of the amount that you put into it, you get back as well. Yeah. There's definitely a greater sweetness in the amount of effort. It's um, the more effort you put in, the sweeter the reward at the end of it. And it's I because think. it's it's bigger than the end. The, the journey is bigger than the goal. Yeah, that's that. That's the way I would think about a lot of things. Well, it's it's the old cliche of uh, it, it's the journey, not the destination, right? And in this mm. case, it is the destination. 
but but it it's certainly the journey is a massive part of it as well. Yeah. Definitely. My uncle is in, in New Zealand and they hunt a lot and it's yes. encouraged. And yeah, I see some of the stalks he does and the distances they travel out into the bush and then what they have to carry back yeah. and what they don't carry back. Yeah, I, I would love to go on a deer stalk. Just not even to kill, as you say, not even to kill, but to actually experience. Process, yeah. Yeah, and it comes back to Daniel Lieberman's book again, you know, chasing the animal and being able to do that. It's interesting because I mentioned that, and I will go back to whilst we're talking about hunting. So my favourite film of all time, um, and it has been for many years, um, is The Deer Hunter, mm -hmm. um, which won the uh, Best Picture Academy Award the year I was born. Obviously, I didn't watch oh, wow. it in that year, in 1978. Yeah. Um, I think it, it would have, it would have uh, fallen on deaf ears. I would, I would have turned out a very different person. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think, for me, what that film, not necessarily just the hunting bits at the beginning, because it's, mm. it, it's a very long film, very complex film, and has different parts to it. Um, it distills the complexity of of life and mm. the pursuit of what we're looking for mm. in, the, in, in, in the pursuit. Cause obviously at the beginning he, he goes hunting just before he goes to Vietnam and he doesn't kill the deer. And then he goes to Vietnam. Mm. But the journey he went through to get to that point and he lets, he actually lets the deer go, doesn't he? He kind of doesn't, he deliberately doesn't kill the deer because he's questioning himself and questioning what's, what's important and what's going to happen and, What's, what's going on with his life I think having that ability to think in those sort of terms and just question things and you, you touched on it earlier Dan in terms of the self-awareness mm. is really important in whatever we do and lifting a stone isn't just lifting a stone it's understanding why we're lifting the stone and what's happening there mm. and the grappling is about understanding why we're doing that yes it's a fitness thing <laughs> we're doing a thing that keeps us fit and healthy but understanding where it's come from makes it a bit more relevant and important to your life does that 100%. make sense yeah well that you know that's exactly what I, I i was saying with the context is everything you know without context and 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 that's the same for everything. For me, grappling is, I mean, grappling is, of, of the list of all the things it is, a way to keep fit and healthy is, is very, very low down on that list. And for some people, that, that is a good enough reason or maybe at least a reason to start it. Uh, for some people, this idea of self-defense, it's not something that bothers me. It's not something I think about. For some mm. people, that may be, again, a, a reason to start or maybe even a reason to continue. But for me, it goes much deeper. It does. And uh, sort of everything that I do, I kind of, I try to put that context onto it. Maybe, maybe go unnecessarily deep on everything that I do and, uh, and, and, and understand really why I'm doing it. And, but, but, but what it does is it allows me to be as enthusiastic 17 years into me doing it as I was when I first started and, 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 and have a deep reverence and respect for everything that I'm able to do. Uh, a, a, an appreciation, gratitude to my body that it allows me to do it every day, and uh, and the same for stuff like 
you know, seeing rocks and I look at every rock, uh, every, every good looking rock I see on the side of the road, I look differently <laughs> uh, over the journey that I've had over the past couple of years. So yeah, the context really does make everything for sure. Yeah. Do you find when you have new people come in and you watch them over their time coming in, that there's that switch in their mindset and how they view it? Yeah, I think, I think people do. I think people do. And some people do and some people don't. Uh, and I'd be, I'd be very surprised if anyone did to the, to the depths and lengths that I do. Uh, but it's something that, you know, I'm in the process. I've, I've taught jujitsu for a very long time, but, but have never owned my own academy. And it's something I'm in the process of doing at the moment, trying to open my own gym. And I think that uh, after a certain level, I think it is something that I'll try and bring to the table and I'll try and instill a level of the philosophy and the intention behind why I love this. And hopefully that sticks. And some people, they just won't care or they won't yeah. care now and they might care in the future or I'll just plant a little seed that may grow into something uh, in the future. But, but yeah, I think that that is something that I'll want to do. I don't just want people to do it because they think it's a, a bit of fun and it's good for their health. I want them to, to understand that you're partaking in something much deeper actually. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I had a similar thought in terms of going back to what we talked about before, right at the beginning in terms of the gym and fitness and being fit and healthy in terms of lifting the stones and maybe in the gym, you've got some sandbags, you've got some Atlas mm -hmm. balls, you've got some odd objects, you've got things that wouldn't be in a normal pure gym mm -hmm. or, whatever whatever you want to call it and you get people say okay lift that and pick up that sandbag any way you can because that's mm. how people did it in the past mm. <laughs> a lot of people don't care <laughs> they just want to get fit and strong and healthy yes it, how what's your approach to that side of things in terms of getting people strong yeah. enough to do what they need to do in terms of the things you train them for. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, sandbags are a good, uh, I think everything's on a spectrum of depth and, and, uh, context. And there's some stuff that isn't, you know, they're, they're very mm. simply, there's some stuff that isn't, there's some stuff that is, there's something that, that you miss out the majority of it. If you don't, if you don't sort of, uh, integrate the context into your, um, interaction with it, Sandbags is a good example because I don't think there's anything inherently special or uh, I think it's sandbags are just a great tool. Uh, I don't, I mean, I have some, a small amount of reverence for the kettlebell in its history and its shape and stuff like that, but nothing compared to a, a, a historical rock that I may be going to Scotland to lift. So uh, I, I don't think there's need to create context for an individual object, but maybe you have context for the overarching principle behind it. So this is going to make you strong because it's awkward to lift and, you know, odd, odd objects are, uh, you know, something that people have, you know, that, that it's something that's thankfully kind of coming back in the fashion a little bit, but for a while, everyone wanted the opposite. They wanted, you know, nice knurling and one inch diameter bars and stuff that was very ergonomic and was designed to be lifted. And here is something that is, you know, 
quote unquote, not designed to be lifted. Of course, when the sandbags that I use are designed to be lifted, designed, but yeah. they're designed to, uh, to, to mimic something. They're not ergonomic in any way, shape or form. They're meant to be as awkward as possible or they're very simple. They don't, they, they, the, a sandbag and, and, and you could kind of anthropomorphize a little bit with your different objects and you, you look at, a uh, you know, a nice, I've got a nice te- Texas deadlift bar and you look at it and go, this bar wants to be lifted. It, it, mm. it, it, when you grab onto it, it grabs your hand back and it squeezes your hand and, and, and it, and it wants to lift as much weight as possible. And then you look at a sandbag and the sandbag does not want to be lifted. <laughs> Sandbag's personality is very stubborn and, and and he is not interested. He doesn't want to go for a ride. He just wants to stay very much flat on the ground and he'll struggle and he'll squirm and he'll try and maneuver his way out of your grip at every opportunity that you give him. Uh, and then you kind of have everything in between as well. So yeah, It's, it's entropy, entropy in action, isn't it? The sand wants to escape. It wants to escape, yeah, and you've yeah. got to dominate over it. Again, yeah. it kind of goes back to the grappling stuff. Yeah, I mean, sandbags are definitely a unique. Uh, they're not unique, but they are unique. They're they're a great example, along with stones, lifting stones, which obviously we've already spoken about a lot. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, lifting sandbags are sort of the the sandbags are the training. They're like the heavy bag, ironically, uh, equivalent of of lifting stones because they are less likely to injure you if you drop them on you they are not going to damage floor they're not going to be loud they don't bounce around like stones do when you if you if you happen mm-hmm. to drop them they're not going to break um and yeah they're, they're just really versatile bits of equipment and um and i love them i mean I, I i've been training with them for a while now and i have too many sandbags in my garage it takes up a huge <laughs> amount of space it takes mm-hmm. up about a quarter of my home gym yeah yeah, I mean, I think during lockdown, you you decided to get a sandbag, didn't you, to start training with Sean? And I've had, yeah, I've got a sixteen and eighty kilogram one, and they are just so different from a barbell. Mm. Mm. Yeah, you can't you can't make any comparison between them. Um, people who, it's funny. I mean, I think, I think that it's important that people are open minded enough to change their opinions about things and. Mm. I'm happy to say that I've, you know, have absolutely huge shifts in very strongly held beliefs. Thankfully, it was not so strongly held and stubborn to open to, 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 to and not open at all to change that I was able to change my mind about things. But I remember the first podcast I ever did of, of my own podcast uh, about probably about six years ago. And I did it with my strength and conditioning coach, my training partner. And uh, at that point, I was obsessed with barbells. And I didn't think if it, if it wasn't a barbell, it did not matter. Your dumbbell didn't matter. Your kettlebell didn't matter. Sandbags wasn't even something that entered my head. All that mattered is how much you can squat and bench and, and row and nothing else mattered. And, and I really did believe that at the time. And then I look back at that now and I think what a young, misguided, closed-minded fool I I once was. And, um, you know, I, I very rarely, very rarely, and, and that's not to say, that's not to say that there's inherent, anything inherently bad with a barbell. It is a fantastic tool for, for, for building strength. And if anyone tells you otherwise, then they're talking out their ass. Uh, but it is, it is a tool that is not superior. I don't think any tool is superior to another. I think you have sort of all of these different tools. So barbells, dumbbells, uh, kettlebells, sandbags, 
um, are all things that are, and you could even maybe chuck in some rocks in there, are all things that are kind of of equal value. And it just depends how you use them and what your goals are and, uh, and, and so on and so forth. So yeah, I had a huge shift in my training philosophy within those sort of five, six years. Mm, it's, it, it's interesting. We, talk, we, we talked earlier a lot about the context and the mm. stories behind things, but then we went on to say that some things don't have context. And they don't need yeah. to have context because they're just things that help us be stronger and help us kind of go through that process. And all of those things you listed fall under that category. If yes. you're looking to just be stronger, you use one or a, mul- a multitude of those tools that you mentioned, and they will help. They'll do it in a different way because of the, the way in which your body has to move and grab but it's a means to an end isn't it yeah i think it is i think with all of these things uh yeah maybe yesterday i don't know what something was in the air yesterday i just uh felt very uh very deep and philosophical uh maybe today a little bit more pragmatic uh but yeah absolutely i think that you're right these are these are tools and um i don't really get to in in i don't really look at it on a on a deep level that I do with something like stone lifting or grappling. What about, cause you use um, clubs from body, mind fit, don't you? Yeah. Uh, um, so he's, he's in Bradford which is just down the road. From I mean, me. I was, I was there last week. Yeah. Were you? Yeah. 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 I was yeah. mad. So, but so I have never used a club mm. or, or a garters and maces. Yeah. But I can it's see. Question. It's a good question. You hit me with a good one. I mean, there I, can I was see said, why yeah. mm. you would yeah, use I mean, them. Yeah, I was. I was. <laughs> that's so funny. So earlier today, yeah, I bought my. Uh, so I've known of, of of Body Mind Fit for. Oh, yeah, Body Mind Fit. Uh, I've known of them for a long time. Um, and but but the first first clubs I've ever purchased from them is when I visited last week. So I have lots of clubs and I've been using clubs ever since my shoulder, my first shoulder surgery, which was uh, six years ago, over six years ago. Now I've been using clubs since then and uh, Indian clubs and, and, uh, and meals, you know, the very big clubs and uh, maces I was actually using prior to my shoulder injury. So I've been using them for a long time. Um, and then I just picked up some new ones from, uh, from, from, from Peter at BMF yeah, the, the 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 clubs are not. I they all kind of sit somewhere in the middle between the uh, really pragmatic, practical stuff and the kettlebells, barbells, dumbbells, and the spiritual stuff and in kind of the deeper stuff in stone lifting. Um, and I was cleaning out because I bought these new clubs. I was trying to, I've got like no space in my garage gym anymore. So I was trying to clean out and, and, and I kind of took them all out and I gave them a little clean and I cleaned the area that I put them and tried to find space. And uh, literally earlier today, having no idea that you were going to ask me about clubs today. <laughs> and I was thinking about them and thinking about, they, they, they're very different to any other implement that I have in the, in, well, they're, they're different to a lot of the implements that I have in there in that they feel, they, they do have a spirit to them and different ones in different ways. And I think a lot of that comes down to a few things. The first one is that they're made of wood mm. um, and wood is an organic material that feels very different to steel and certainly different to something like plastic. Um, it, it, it's far closely resembles rocks in that way, but even in 
you could even say it's even more organic. At one point, it was a living, it was a living entity. Um, and also the fact that, you know, where they come from in India or in Iran, um, they, especially in India, they give a huge reverence to their clubs. The club that I got, I, I got a big Akushti club, which is an Indian style of club from Peter um, last week. And they use special oils to, 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 to oil the clubs. And he actually gave, you know, he oiled it and then he gave me some oil to take home with me. And there, there is a huge part of spirituality um, and, and sacredness to the clubs. So yeah, the clubs are not in the same category as sandbags, kettlebells, dumbbells, barbells. They are, um, they're, they're a separate category where they are kind of works of art and also practical tools and also have a lot of history and content context and also potentially on your, on your worldview, um, a level of spiritual as spiritualism to them as well. I would, I would recommend anybody if they don't know what they are to, to look at body mind fits mm. Instagram and, and see what they are. Cause they are pieces of art. Mm, they are. Yeah. They're and, just and, so beautiful. They are beautiful. I mean, I have I have some other clubs, and you know, all wooden clubs are fantastic. I also, actually, today I I got in the post some really gorgeous um, old antique uh, English because uh, Indian club uh, training was massive in the UK in the in in the early 1900s. Um, it was huge. Everyone had them. So there's clubs all over the place. It was it was a really big thing for sort of the the, the health and fitness physical culture era. Um, but yeah, they 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 are gorgeous and the Kushti club that I have is just stunning to look at. I mean, it is so, I kind of don't, I'm not going to let anyone touch it or use it because I don't want to dent it or bang it up or anything like that. So, so yeah, those, and, 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 you know, something that I was mentioning yesterday about history and mythology and stuff like that, the clubs are something that really go back a very long time. Um, they have a deep, rich history and mythology, um, and uh, yeah, they're, they're kind of special implements to use. They're much, they, they go much deeper than the pragmatic use of the other implements that we've been talking about. Yeah, I think the art, <clears throat> there's a difference to the stones though, I think, because a lot of they the stones are different, yes. that we talked about, they're just stones. They weren't created. I know we talked about the Basque stones, which have been carved and shaped in certain ways, but you know, the stones that we talked about in Scotland, they're just stones. They haven't been altered other than maybe they were used on a bridge and just, but, but they're, they're, they're stones. Whereas mm. the clubs have been handmade. They've been made by someone who really cares. Mm. When you were talking about the, the, the clubs, I was thinking of axes um, mm. from a practical sense. And I know we talked a little bit about hunting um, and the, the, the sort of <clears throat> the hunter gatherer style life in terms of axes. And I know there's a really big, <sighs> Is maybe not a movement, but a community about handmade axes and what mm. they mean and recycling the blades of those and putting them in new wooden handles that have been crafted. And I know a lot of people swear by axe work in terms of wood chopping and things as a physical pursuit as well. Yeah. And I, I mean, think it's a that, sport, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think not necessarily the, the, the sport of it, but the, the actual doing of it to live Mm. And caring about the thing that you use and caring about the product because you've cared for it, you oil it, you, you, you fix it, you mm. reuse 
the blade, you've, it may have lasted a very, very long time. And when you were talking about the clubs there, that I, I've got an axe and I love my axe because I chop wood with it mm. and I look after it and I do care about it, not in the sense that it's a, it's a bespoke handmade thing that I'm going to sell, but I do It I doesn't do have care. to be though, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, think, I think that you, you kind of bring up an interesting point. I mean earlier I kind of said that a tool is very different to something that you can almost maybe imply that you can't have reverence for a tool but of course you can because then you bring in the context to that you know a barbell can be very special if you have a very expensive barbell and if you're a power lifter um, you know kind of you have your own entities deities gods you know the barbell could be your god if that is all you care about your you know 500 pound texas powerlifting bar could be the thing that you think about every day when you you know wake up in the morning and before you go to sleep at night uh and then you give it context i do think it is different and, and tools are the same you know axes and it kind of reminds me when you're talking about that in the way that a sword in Japan was seen as actually possessing the samurai's soul mm. and how important it was. And uh, again, bringing that spirituality, spirituality into it, something that's going to be, again, very much handmade, obviously, that, that the iron ore is still coming from the earth. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's not quite as far deep as plastic. Um, it's very hard. It's very hard to, to have reverence for something made of something so human as plastic. Uh, but yeah, metal, you know, beautiful metal work and especially weapons, shields and armor and, um, and, and, and certainly swords are kind of, you know, swords are renowned as being these special things. And then when you go over to that Japanese, you know, to the, to, to, to the, to Asia or the far East and, where they kind of have the spiritual side to it as well. So yeah, I think tools can have a, a, a depth depending on the context. I mean, samurai swords, for example, there is a lot of the, there's a lot of history again, going back into that and, and spirituality, spirituality going into that and axes to a degree as well. So I think you have a huge spectrum on, on, mm. on, on kind of how deep these things go, but yeah, you're right. They, they're very different to uh, stones, stones, especially natural stones. Obviously you can have stones that have been carved, not for training necessarily, uh, but stones that have been um, shaped, be it to be put into a pyramid or stones that have been, you know, megaliths that have been carved and runes put into them or, you know, that a lot of stones are manufactured or processed in some way by humans and, uh, you know, they're, they're considered sacred. But yeah, also, I mean, that's kind of the beautiful thing about stone lifting is that the stones that we give this huge reverence to have been completely untouched by humans. A lot of them have anyway, most of them have. Going back to sandbags and training. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I try, we tried to get away from that today. Yeah, well, oh, why, you dragged me back in. Um, <laughs> that that well, was my, my fault. We'll swing around, don't worry. So, so you've got someone coming in to the gym and they're saying yeah. to you, well, how, how do I train outside of the mat? What mm. do I need to do for my physical preparation? What are you saying to, um, to someone that's coming in? Sure. I mean, the first question would really be, you know, what, what's the goal? What are you trying to do? That's kind of got to be, you got to, you got to find out what that person is interested in doing. Are they interested in doing 
do they want to lift stones? Do they, I have a lot of people come up to me and go, you know, I saw stones and strangles. I want to lift, I want to lift the Inverstone. How do I do it? I go, mm. okay, well, you got to start then, you know, get some sandbags, probably help you, you know, if I get your hands on some, on some stones if you can as well. Or someone might say, uh, you know, I just want to be really strong on the mats or I want to have a really strong grip or I just want to be able to move better. So I think the first thing you always need to do when uh, giving someone advice is really kind of get on the same page and understand where their head's at in terms of what they want out of their training. Um, but, but, but kind of just making us, you know, ignoring that premise. Um, so I was thinking for your, yeah. someone that's coming into BJJ and is wanting yes. to, someone wants to train like me. Yeah. So basically I think what you're getting at is how does someone start training with sandbags? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Let's do that. Yeah. Is that, uh, well, sandbags, yeah, I, kettlebells, grip strength. Cause you do some fantastic pull-up variations to help with your grip. Yeah and back strength yeah i mean so okay let, let, let's kind of break them down um and, and kind of make it a little bit more i don't know digestible uh the grip stuff i have i have two instructions out not that i'm here to plug instructionals but that the, the, the two instructions that i put out i i kind of try and find a problem and then create an instructional to solve it opposed to just putting something out there and hoping that people that, that it resonates with people who also have this issue um so the first instruction that i did was a grip strength one because a lot of people ask me how do you get into training grip and grip is so interesting because people just talk about this grip hands you know and it, as if it's this very simple one thing but in fact because of our anatomy and physiology and how hands are so important and dexterousness is so important to how we've evolved the you know what i consider the the lower arm so sort of the elbow down to the fingertips is this insanely complex part of the human anatomy and you know the number of um different i think you, you have a medical background correct uh, no, yes, I'm a nurse practitioner, so a lot of yeah. physiology. So you have to understand, you know, the, the, the different ranges of motion that we have uh, compared to, say, when you're doing legs and you just have to worry about the articulation of the hip and then the hinging of the knee and maybe a bit of the ankles. You know, in, in, in the hands and wrist alone, you have deviation and, you know, a radial and ulnar deviation. You have supination, pronation, flexion, extension, thumb, fingers moving in all different directions and kind of everything around it. And because of that, uh, this reductionist idea of training grip is really, um, it, it, it's a complete illusion of to actually understanding what you want to be doing. So what I talk about when I try and, and what I would explain to someone, if someone came into my gym and they asked me to kind of enlighten them about how to train their grip is to teach them different kinds of grip. So you have crushing strength, which is building this concentric ability to kind of crush something that you'd be doing with a, with a torsion spring grip or with a hand gripper. And then you have, um, and then you have pinch, which is sort of your fingers and thumb working opposite each other. Like you are holding onto a book and trying to crush it. You have closed hand support, trying to grab onto something like a barbell, open hand support, like trying to grab onto something like a thick handled barbell. And then sort of the art articulation of the wrist, which for grappling is a massive thing. This, this, this position of flexion that, that, that I refer to as cut, uh, hooking, creating this hook in the wrist, this 90 degree or sort of 45 to 90 degree angle in the wrist where you're engaging the forearm a lot. You know, this is massive in grappling, especially in no-gi grappling to be able to connect yourself to your opponent. Uh, so there's just many, many different um, 
forms of ranges of motion and, and different styles, isometric and extension and flexion and different things. And you need to understand all of them. And what that does is it gives you a well-rounded grip strength because some of the stuff that I actually do and some of the stuff that I teach other people to do, it doesn't have any direct crossover to anything. It doesn't have a practical application necessarily or much of a practical application. What it does is it balances out some of the imbalances that you can create by doing the same thing over and over again. So a big problem for most people, but especially for grapplers because, and especially for gi grapplers because, you know, you're gripping so much and, you know, for an hour a day, sometimes twice a day, some people just squeeze in with all of your strength and your flexors become incredibly overdeveloped. And if you don't balance that out with extension work, opening mm. the hand up, extending the wrist backwards, then it causes really bad elbow pain. So when people see me doing all of this grip stuff, they go, man, you must have terrible tendonitis in your elbows. And they go, well, no, I don't have any problems with my elbows because I do the grip stuff, not in spite of it, because I have a well-rounded grip training program that I do um, of many different styles and many different, I'm working every single range of motion, you know, most times that I train. Yeah, I thought that when, when you were saying about grip strength, I was thinking since since I've been doing and I will actually slightly disagree with the crossover to functional. Yeah. In terms of because I've noticed and I do I'm gonna do it in inverted commas, functional training. Yep. <laughs> we we've we've said whatever that yep. means. Is yeah, yeah, whatever we, your we goal mentioned is. That. Yeah. Um, but I've noticed since I've been doing that in terms of um grip strength in different ways is Yes, okay, your forearms are stronger. And when people think about forearms, they'll think about palm up, that part. Mm -hmm. Flip it over and then lift your wrist up. Mm. If you're doing, I would say, enough grip work and doing it correctly, you'll notice the other side, the top of your arm, mm -hmm. has developed muscles that you didn't even know existed. And I think yeah. maybe that's what you're saying there in terms of it's both sides. It's tricep, bicep. Yeah, it's, it's, that, it's, that, that, that's exactly what I'm saying. So to clarify what I mean by uh, the sort of a practical application. So the opposite, yeah, that the flexion in the wrist is a range of motion that you can train to be strong because when I have an opponent's head I'm going to be holding it in this position or when I'm underhooking an arm, I'm going to be holding it in this position. It's very easy to sell because you can see the practical app application for my sport. It's much harder to see the practical application of wrist extension, finger extension, mm -hmm. even though you may be able to, you know, maybe there's some positions where you'll be using that a little bit. Realistically, it's a very weak position. So you're never going to be looking to use it on the mat. However, just like you said, and I mentioned, yeah. you still are going to do that sort of stuff because it balances out that flexion. So in the same way, let's say that you are, it would be the same way that a boxer would look to train their triceps to be able to throw those punches fast, but they need to train their biceps as well to not only be able to bring it back, but also to just balance out that pushing work. So yeah. even if your sport is a hundred percent pull, you need to get the push in order to balance it out. If it's a hundred percent push, you need to get the pull to balance it out. So uh, like any other form of training. And that's what that I, I, th I think that's what uh, it's important when you are doing strength and conditioning outside of your sport that you don't 
only try and do things that have a obvious application to your sport. So yeah. we've spoken about this in the context just of grip, but this is true of all movements because it's very, very easy for people to go, okay, when I'm doing jujitsu, I'm doing loads of pulling and I'm not, and I'm, and, and I'm doing a little bit of push, you know, or whatever. Let's say, just say we're going to do loads of pulling. So I'm just going to do pulling in the gym and get really, really strong because I don't need to be able to do anything else. Well, you're going to create imbalances whilst practicing mm. your sport. And then you're going to go into the gym and you're going to exacerbate those imbalances even more. Whereas what you should be doing in the gym is training the things that are practical for your sport and also training the stuff that opposes those to create that balance. So you're making yourself less injury, I, uh, um, you know, less, yeah, less, less. I, I totally uh, agree. And I think, I think something's just dropped in my head and we, again right at the beginning we talked about the functional thing and what is functional it's functional for your sport mm -hmm. etc but i think we've uncovered something quite interesting there which is whether it's functional <laughs> for your sport or not you can still benefit from things outside of your sport and yeah. the, the opposing thing is, is let's let's go back to the idea of the the global gym the mm -hmm. kind of aesthetic led pull push you know, kind yep. of biceps, you know, pecs, yeah, yeah, yeah. quads, calves. But what about thinking about in terms of the, the, the other end, in terms of not necessarily in terms of the grip, in terms of the hand, but in terms of the feet, what about how's your dorsiflexion? You know, mm -hmm. how, 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 does it, how can you, what's your range of, mo range of motion in your ankles? And again, like my example in terms of the um, sort of muscles and tendons that strengthen and develop on the top of the arm it's the same on the shin everyone thinks it's just bone but if mm. you if you if you flex your foot and feel you're like oh mm. actually i've got muscles there so yeah. you've got yeah this is where um i think his name is ben parker the knees over toes guy yeah has yeah. has really come in and tried to tell people actually if you work your tibialis your anterior tibialis the, the, the front muscles of your shin you are creating more support of your ankle so your knees aren't taking all the concussive movements. Mm. And that's essentially where he's coming from. Um, and in talking of imbalance, if you look at nature, probably the biggest imbalance I can think of is a crocodile's jaw. Mm -hmm. Massive contracting <laughs> force, <laughs> no strength to open it, which is why people can hold the jaw closed. Mm -hmm. That's what happens if you get imbalance. So crocodiles yeah. should train... Open no, in the mouth. Uh, okay, so it's an interesting thing there because I, I kind of, I look at, um, but you're absolutely right. There is a huge, I mean, it's maxable and mandible. Their ability to close their jaw is incredibly strong and the ability to open it because why would they evolve to have really powerful openers? Exactly. You know, you know it, it's not going to help them at all. I mean, the argument would be to that because it's a really interesting point is that nature's perfect sort of, you know, that a crocodile, a crocodile is perfect and 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 the reason and they don't need to train their mouth opening because i mean the first argument that you can make is crocodiles don't hit the hit the gym at all right rarely yeah rarely. rarely i mean you'd be uh you'd be out of there pretty sharpish wouldn't you if a crocodile was going to train its jaw closed it should train its jaw open but it brings up a really interesting yeah. uh, point specifically about flexion extension in the hands and forearm which is the extensors much like the extending 
of the crocodile's jaw, the extenders in the forearm are naturally much weaker, which means that the amount of training that you need to do to balance them out is really minimal. So you don't have to, if you spend half an hour training your flexion, you can balance that out with five minutes of training your extensors. And that's kind of the beauty of it. You don't have to do a huge amount. And I've actually, um, it's really interesting because I, uh, especially when I had shoulder surgery about 10 months ago on the other shoulder. Um, and, uh, I told my pec actually had that, had that. And, and, and I couldn't train jujitsu for a long time afterwards. I couldn't do any real training, but I spent loads of time in the gym, just messing around and experimenting and coming up with different things. And I came up with this cool exercise where I just put the band, uh, I got a, a light resistant band on a high anchor point and I put the band around my base knuckles and brought my wrist into extension and then just kind of rode with the back of my hand mm. and it lit up my, I, I know I kind of do a lot of extensor work anyway, or I'm, I'm very familiar with it, but it lit up my extensors more than anything I've ever done before really, really quickly. And I thought this is super cool for anyone who's having any problems uh, with their, with their extensors or problems in the elbows, this would be really interesting. And because I don't have any problems in my elbows, I can't test that on myself. So I put it on my Instagram. I said, guys, you know, if you, if you've got an imbalance, uh, if you've got, um, sort of media epicondylitis, try this out. And I was getting messages. So I thought, you know, do it, you know, five sets of 15 reps every day for a couple of weeks and see how it feels. People were messaging me saying, I went, I went into the garage and I did one set of 15 and my elbow pain, pain's gone. Literally like that. And obviously that is all that's happening there is sort of the tone and the tension is going into the forearm and that's alleviating the pressure. But it just goes to show how quick an effect it can have if they bring that into their, their program regularly. So it can be really interesting how little you sometimes in some scenarios you have to do to actually balance it out and, and fix a lot of problems. Mm. I, I don't have an obsession with the word, word functional, even though it seems <laughs> that I do. But I think, isn't it a, maybe a decent description of functional is to be able to do whatever your thing is without issue and without injury? Yeah, or, yeah, I think... Yeah, you can definitely make a really good argument that functional just means kind of your body being healthy and mobile and can move in any way that you want it to move. Yeah. I think when you talk about functional, like you said, you functional for a power lifter is going to look different for functional for a grappler. And I think that if someone comes in mm. and they are kind of completely um, vague and they just want to be functional, then you go, okay, well, you want to be functional for life, right? So you want to be able to sit down, you want to stand up, you want to be able to uh, climb on something if you need to climb it, jump off something if you need to jump and kind of basically be able to do, you kind of, you see these, these movement, mm. um, these movement movements, um, movement modalities where kind of that is the goal of these primal things, squat, run, jump, move, whatever. No, I was I was actually being more more specific to a particular uh -huh. sport in that if you know that, like you said, if you, if you know that your particular sport, if it's grappling, is going okay, to have yeah. more more pulling movements, yeah, you're actually going to be better if you do a little bit on the pushing movements to yeah. balance that out. And I yeah, think you can apply that to powerlifting and apply that to anything you want. And mm -hmm. it's understanding that 
there is other things yeah. you can do other than just the core movements and other than just yes. the pure things that you think are there because there's a lot yeah. of other things that support the movements and the yeah. way in which and the physiology that they're actually using. That, that was more my point. Yeah, 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 it yeah it. It's structural work, isn't it? Yeah. Because you, you have to balance things out, otherwise it just becomes too much to one way. Mm. How did you find training post-injury? Uh, I, I have had uh, plenty of injuries, so I'm kind of used to it. Uh, yeah, it was, it was fine. It was fine. Um, I've, it's, it's not my first rodeo. So, uh, I've been, been there, done that and, and got the scars to show it. So it was not, uh, it was something that I was very familiar with. Yeah. So just adaptation and working around it and moving on different areas instead. Yeah, exactly. So sort of with my, um, so I tore my pec in competition in August last year, I had surgery to reattach the pec. Uh, a couple of weeks later, uh, and I was I was tra- I trained uh, I trained the day I came out of hospital in my sling. Um, I mean, all, between all of the drugs and the general anaesthetic, I, I I think I did three sets of bodyweight squats. My legs were cramping up. Uh, very interesting what uh, <laughs> what those fo- <laughs> those drugs do to you. They really fuck your body up pretty bad. Um, yep. But yeah, so so I was I was training lower body. And my good arm from the day that I came out with the intention of continuing to move and, you know, doing, basically doing everything that I could. Um, and yeah, tra- tra- training my right arm. I know that there's a lot of studies to suggest that training on your non-injured arm is going to uh, help reduce the amount of atrophy that you're going to get in your injured arm yeah. for people in casts and stuff like that. Or in my case, I was in a sling for a while. Uh, and then as soon as I got the go ahead, I was doing safety squat bar squats and, uh, basically doing everything that I could. I, I did a little bit of, um, blood flow restriction training around my legs to try and get sort of more bang for buck out of some of the exercises. Um, and then I was doing, I mean, they gave me some movements to do on my bad arm from the day that I came out. I take my rehab very seriously. Why wouldn't you? And, uh, so I was doing all of the movements and then I'd probably say, Maybe a couple of weeks, I started doing some grip stuff, very light grip stuff on my on my bad arm as well, just to keep it. I wanted to keep the blood flow there, and I wanted to keep it moving, even though my pec wasn't being, uh, you know, wasn't being hit at all. Yeah, did, did is that happen? with a view to going back to competitive jujitsu? Of course, yeah. 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 Have you have you had any injuries that have not been during competition that have occurred during training? Um. Uh, in in uh, I mean, in training or just non-contact injuries at all? I suppose, I suppose, I mean, training in terms of strength and conditioning yeah. in the gym. Okay, so I had uh, my kind of worst injury and a chronic injury that I've had is I injured my back quite badly when I was 21. So we're talking about 10 years ago now. Um, it was something that had already, that, that basically was... Essentially, when I was 15 years old and doing some striking martial arts, I threw a kick and because uh, I remember injuring, in, injuring my back pretty badly, but a couple of days of rest and some diazepam and you know, you're 15 years old, you recover like that. <laughs> uh, but essentially what happened is I, I, I broke both sides of my vertebrae, but because I was still young and my growth plates hadn't fused, they managed to fuse back, but they didn't fuse uh, they didn't fuse perfectly or symmetrically. So then um, it's, e- e- either I broke it again at another point 
or I basically I had an injury doing bent over rows where um, it's very possible that original injury created some more tension through my hamstrings that put more pressure into my lower back. So in the gym, I injured my back and had a pars fracture and some herniation around it. And that began a, a very long, a very long journey. Um, I mean, I guess you could say even to, to today and probably the rest of my life of, uh, of dealing with this back injury. And yeah, it was a long journey. It was an interesting journey. Do, do you know what? That, you've just triggered something. And we have talked about this in previous conversations with different people. Yeah. Um, when I used to swim and it was around the same sort of age when I was swimming competitively, sort of 14, 15, mm. I had back issues. Mm. And if anything, I get tweaks in my lower back mm. even now, not, not very often and not seriously. Yeah. But I'm wondering, does, does that apply? Is, is it something like that? Something kind of went wrong and came back together yeah, I Sorry, mean, I'm just, I'm just thinking out loud. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, when when I did the injury, it was it was very bad. I mean, from for 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 the first year, I could barely train. Um, yeah, that's was, that's yeah. not me. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's nowhere near I, response. <laughs> I could barely train, and um, and then that was probably six months or to a year. Then for the next three or four years, I would say. Um, when I'd had flare up, so it would just flare up. There were a lot of things that I couldn't do. So for example, I couldn't deadlift or do anything. I, I couldn't hinge hip at all, uh, mm. hip hinge at all. So, uh, so I was, I was squatting a lot. Uh, I mean, I was squatting over 200 kilos, but if you told me to pick up five pennies off the floor, I'd be crippled. It was really weird like that because I could squat without hinging, without the hip hinge. So the hip hinge was a, a nightmare for me. And when it flared up, it would be a couple of weeks until it would calm down again. And I'd be pretty incapacitated until, until then. Uh, I could not stand up for more than about five or 10 minutes. I could not walk for more than about five or 10 minutes. Um, and this lasted for a, quite a long time and you just learn one, you sort of deal, learn to live with the pain and then two, you just become really good at knowing what you can and can't do. I can do that. I can't do that. I can do that. I can't do that. And what changed everything interestingly enough, kind of bringing us full circle to what we were talking about, uh, before uh, much earlier, which was, uh, which was stone lifting. And it's really funny because, when I first discovered the 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 uh, sport or the activity, whatever you want to call it, uh, of stone lifting, I'd already injured my back, and I looked at it and I'm like, "You're lifting huge stones off the ground. This is something that I will never be able to do in my whole life." And I and literally, it was I I I I didn't even give it a second thought because I knew that this was something that I would never be able to do. And, um, I didn't care. I didn't really know what I was missing out on. And then, uh, David Horn, who's a sort of a, the top grip guy in the country. And I buy a lot of stuff from him. He released a product, which I, I buy all of his products and he released a product, which was the Dinny stone trainers. So Dinny stones, kind of the most famous stones in the, in the, in the UK Double and stones. Scotland. Yeah, two stones, but they're, yeah. exactly. But they're not technically proper lifting stones because they have handles. They're, they're, they're much heavier. You lift them together, they're 144 kilos and 188 kilos, so 333 and change 
kilos uh, and you grab these two ring handles and, and you stand up and you pick them up both at the same time. And I didn't think that I'd ever be able to do that. And I didn't care. But David Horn released these Dinny trainers and I bought them and I began lifting them. Very, very light and kind of a short range of motion. And because of the short range of motion and sort of the straddling position that you'd lift them, I wasn't hit. I wasn't hinging in the hip at all. So I was working up to, I, I ended up getting like 300 kilos, 320 kilos. And I'm thinking, I can, I can do this thing. I, I might actually be able to lift the Dinny stones. And uh, so I began my training to lift the Dinny stones to do something I never thought I'd be able to do. And what was really interesting is my back feels really good. Mm. You know, this, this, this isn't what's meant to happen. My back's feeling great and I'm not having any flare ups and I'm, I'm rolling pain free and it was starting to heal my back. And around about the same time I, I, I kind of got into, I got my first sandbag and I started lifting the sandbag. I'm going, I can lift the sandbag and it's not hurting me. Yeah. And that's kind of what started everything going. Yeah. Yeah. So my, I used to have talking about my back issues when I was in a CrossFit gym, I used to mm. have back issues using the barbell, mm. particularly on deadlifts, particularly on snatches. Um, when the pandemic hit, that went away. I got myself a sandbag. Mm. I've had very, very little yeah. issues with the back. And whatever, whatever the reason for that, that's, that's a question for a different time. Oh, no, we'll talk about I, that now. Yeah. Okay. I think it's because you lift it in the way your body wants to lift it rather than the way in which you're coached or shown to lift it. Mm. That, that, that's my personal view. Yeah. So it's a really <laughs> interesting topic and I'll give you my take on it. In the same way you mentioned um, Ben Patrick earlier and the knees over toes, his whole yeah. philosophy is based on doing things that are one conventionally avoided and the whole reason for doing them is because if bringing your knees over your toes is a potentially dangerous position, you shouldn't avoid it. You should no. get strong. You should get stronger in it, right? Absolutely. If 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 if, if something is dangerous, the answer is to 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 reinforce that weakness, yep. not to do anything. So you go. You mitigate it, don't you? Exactly. So you go. I mean, the, the, the best chance that a burglar has of getting into the house is through the front door. That doesn't mean that we don't have a front door. That means that you make that front door as strong as possible, right? Yeah. So that works for the um, knees over toes. And I think it also works for round back lifting. This idea, in the same way that the form police, the barbell purists, if they saw someone's knees going over their toes, which of course is preposterous because you watch the best squatters in the world with the deepest form in, in Olympic squatters and their knees are very much over their toes. Uh, but but a, a squat purist may say, or may cue someone to not lift them with their knees over their toes. And if they see that doing, they go, oh God, this is the worst. Your knees are going to explode. And of course it doesn't. It makes them stronger and, and everything becomes stronger around it. And it's the same for round back lifting, which is, do I think that you should lift a barbell with a round back? No, because that's not how a barbell should be lifted. But a sandbag must be lifted with a round back. You cannot lift it with a straight back. And 
Um, I mean, th- there's another story there where someone messaged me when I was kind of putting loads of content on the sandbags. They messaged me saying, um, I injured my back doing sandbags. And I go, oh my God, no. And I message him, I go, tell me, tell me what happened. And he goes, I was trying to lift it like a deadlift. He was picking it up, arm straight, you know, uh, squatting down, back dead straight like he was doing a deadlift. So the only kind of, to my knowledge, the best way to injure yourself doing a sandbag lift is to lift it in this really strict, safe form with that straight back. So I think the, the in the same way, you know, get strong with your knees over your toes, get strong in a slightly rounded back position. I think the big difference and people go, but surely round back can't be good. And here's the difference. If your back is rounding because you're doing something above your capability and you're trying not to round your back, but it rounds anyway, then you have a problem. Such as when I was doing my bent over rows and I fucked my back up. It's because I was going too heavy for too many reps and I just wanted one more rep and my back rounded and and, and the discs exploded out. Uh, But if you're doing something that requires a rounded back, and you are rounding your back with intention, control on purpose, then that's a very different story. So um, I've heard it from lots of other people who have fixed their back problems by lifting sandbags. And I think that's the reason. And what's obviously so fascinating about that is because it goes against all of the conventional wisdom of how to fix a back and how to injure a back. I think yeah. with sandbags as well, you are constantly accommodating for the for the sandbag. You can't afford to be rigid with it. You have to, it's like having a dance partner. You have to dance with it. You can't just hold it and swing it. You can hold it and swing it around, but you know what I mean? You have to go with it. To some extent. Yeah, I, 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 I do agree with it. I think that there's a lot more full body. You're kind of, everything works when you lift the sandbag. Yeah. But then, you know, when you get good at doing it, you can kind of throw it around with a little bit less respect. Uh, as your body yeah. sort of adapts to being able to do it, and your yeah. body, you know, you get that coordination down. But, but yeah, you know, one of my favorite exercises in the world is is the bear hug, sandbag squat, and uh, you can go pretty heavy with them. And uh, I mean, my my sandbag squat is definitely stronger than my back squat, which is funny, just because I don't do much back squatting, any back squatting. Uh, but yeah, it's just a great exercise because everything's going your lats, your arms, your grip, your your your, your quads, of course, and glutes, and it's just a great lift. Nasty, you're doing it with extreme range of motion because you were going right to the floor, sitting down, legs straight out in front of you. Yeah. That's something slightly different, but yeah, not as I'll heavy. Play, I'll play yeah, around but... with that as well. That, that, that was something from David Horn, which is the, the, uh, the, the, the teddy bear squats where he'll try and sit to a four inch or I think I got it down to a two inch block, sit down, uh, take your legs off and yeah. then try and get back into the squat position. So, yeah, you know, that that's not, if I was doing, you know, a, a 150, 60, 70, 80 kilo sandbag squat, I wouldn't be doing that. But yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's just other ways to, it's, it's a different way to squat and a different way that hip mobility is something that is uh, really important in general. And uh, I'm lucky that I have a lot of good natural hip position for squatting. I, and I don't think people appreciate that you are using an advanced uh, fabric in your training gear. <laughs> when, uh, um, an advanced but readily, readily accessible fabric in, 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 denim. in the fantastic fa- as I'm wearing right now. Yeah, denim, of course. Yeah, yeah denim. I think me, me, myself and Paul both agreed that the second part of this conversation would be <laughs> focused upon training and denim. 
<laughs> it need, it need, we needed to talk about denim. I'm just disappointed to never in double denim. I mean, I think that would just... Oh, don't never say never. I'm often in double denim. I'll tell you what, I'm going to train tomorrow in double denim just for you. Oh, I love it. Um, just for you. I'm going to stick up on my Instagram the next couple of days. Promise. <laughs> uh, but yeah, de- denim is an interesting one. I mean, if you want to hear the story of denim, I'll tell you the, the, the kind of how I got into it, pure practical side, and then sort of some of the interesting we can get deep on that as well. Denim is, uh, I started wearing denim when I was bending horseshoes because it's sort of the ideal material where it's strong enough that it won't rip and it gives you a little bit of grip. Um, so I started wearing denim when I was bending horseshoes in them. And then I just started, well, I'm going to bend some horseshoes in this workout. So I'm just going to wear it for the rest of the workout. And I didn't think much of it. And you know, at this point, a lot of people go, oh, how could you train a denim? It's stretchy denim. That was the game changer. I hated jeans and then I bought some stretchy denim and my life changed, literally. Um, so yeah, the denim is stretchy and it's great. And it's a rugged material and it means when I'm doing stones, it doesn't slip. It gives it yeah. a bit of grip. It's very strong. So the stones aren't going to uh, make holes in it and stuff like that. And then I just remember sort of the first year people were clocking on that I was doing everything in denim, in jeans. And then summer came and they go, well, you're not going to train. You're not going to still be wearing denim now. So, of course, I pulled out the Daisy Dukes and, and that's kind of where it all took off where. Uh, but but it got to a point. So I, I didn't I kind of didn't do it on purpose. It kind of just happened. But I got to a point where I cannot do some things, especially uh, unless I'm wearing denim like I I I I. I will not be able to feel comfortable lifting stones or doing sandbags in anything other than jeans and boots. So it's, I, so it's yeah. either a superpower or a comfort blanket. Yeah, exactly. It's either a superpower <laughs> or, or both. Why not both? <laughs> yeah, so, maybe both. I mean, I mean the the uh, I had uh, I had Joe.co.uk, which is like a big. Um, they came round to my house pre-pandemic. <laughs> And they, and we did some training about grip training and, and, and I, I, this poor guy, I stuck him in, <laughs> in double denim to do some lifts. Uh, and we ended up speaking about <laughs> denim as well. And I kind of, I, I, I made it deeper than it maybe really was, but there's this idea of enclosed cognition. Have you ever heard of this? Enclosed no. cognition? Okay. No. It's really interesting. So enclosed cognition is the idea that what you wear affects your personality and affects your behavior. Uh, and uh, it's sort of the idea of uh, dress for the job that you want. So the experiment was very simply is they gave one group, um, you know, a a lab coat, a scientist lab coat. They gave one group a uh, painter's smock and uh, one group a, I can't remember what the other one was, uh, but it was something else. And essentially, you know, the ones that were in the, or, or, or I think it was doc, a doctor's uh, cloak. And the one that was in the site, you know, when, when they did test on them, they all did the same test. And the ones that were in the um, lab coat were pragmatic and logical and very sort of science and math minded. And the ones that were in the painters were very creative and artistic and the ones that were in the doctors were compassionate and of course it was all the same lab coat for all three of them right <laughs> so there's yeah. no difference in what they were wearing only what they thought they were wearing yeah. um so this so so for me and i think it is really powerful 
I think when you put on something, when you, when you get dressed in something and you see people would do it, people get really into their gym fits, you know, into their gym shark, uh, leggings or shorts and vest or whatever it is. And they invest a lot of money in it or the under armor putting on clothes that, that, that you associate with, uh, being focused or being strong or having good endurance will give you these traits. So for me, denim is about rugged and strong mm. and tough and you know hard work so when i put it on i think subconsciously that is what is being imbued in me as well um so yeah i think it does go deeper in cloak cognition is a really interesting concept um I, and it and it and, yeah. it and it potentially works yeah yeah I, th- I think that is really interesting i also think on the flip side of that there's there's the bad side of that which is people who think that just because they wear active wear means that they're doing some good things sure yeah <laughs> i mean yeah and, and yeah i guess in that regard you know it's it's not actually and of course because the experiment shows this mm. it's not what you wear it's just how you think of what you wear yeah so um 100%. If, if someone likes to wear active wear because it makes them feel that they are a more active person, then go for it. Even if they're not, I mean, go for it. Why not? It's not, it's not hurting anyone. Um, it's why some people, you know, they, they like to, you know, they have the option of being able to come in to work, wearing whatever they want, but they want to wear a suit because they associate a suit with intelligence business. and business and, 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 and competence. And that it, it, the suit, putting a suit on someone who hates suits and and they associate suits with being uh, pompous assholes. May become more of a pompous asshole and not become more businesslike or smart in any way. So it's not the clothes that have the magic. It's just a external focus, lightning rod almost to intrinsic um, thoughts that are able to manipulate your behavior. Yeah, I think Silicon Valley is an ideal example of that in terms of Silicon Valley millionaires and billionaires. If they wore a suit, they'd be laughed out of Silicon Valley. But if they turn up in jeans and a hoodie, they're like, hey, you must be be a big shot here. Yes, exactly. (laughs) I mean, mean, you also have you know, just because we're talking about clothes, you also have the sort of uh, um, Steve Jobs and Mark Zuckerberg um, philosophy on that sort of stuff, which is, you know, you're going to make, you get to make 10 decisions a day. Let's not make one of those decisions being what you wear in the morning. I'm going to wear the same thing every single day. I I, I pretty much do that. I wear jeans and I wear wear jeans and a white t-shirt or I wear jeans and a khaki vest that's pretty much it. And if it's cold out, I wear jeans and a cocky vest and a, and a flannel shirt. And I very rarely actually have to think about what I wear unless I'm going to, 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 to an event, but my everyday stuff, I put very little thought into what I wear and allow that thought to go to something else. Yeah. I like that. That it's just, it's routine as well, isn't it? And it's just right. Well, that's easy. It's taken care of job done. Yeah. Yeah. And Can it I... doesn't, sorry, sorry Paul, just, no, no, just no, last, no. last point on this one. And it doesn't really matter because the only reason it matters is because of external perception. Uh, that you wear the same every day? Well, yeah, because, no, that, that you're supposed to wear a certain thing yeah. for a certain activity. Yeah, exactly. External perception. Exactly. 
Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That 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 is something that is created by society or by mm. a culture or a particular place. Uh obviously, if you are meant to wear something, okay, so I'll give you an example. There are certain things that you can and can't wear to a jiu-jitsu academy. If you come in with shorts that have uh, pockets in them, that's an issue. It's a safety issue. Uh, but outside of that, you know, there's a lot of it's 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 a really interesting thing, um, which is some gyms will have a uniform. You have to wear the gym branded and sold shorts and rash guard to do no gi grappling. Um, so everyone looks the same and mm. I hate that personally. There's some gyms that love that. There's some people that love that personally. I hate it because I think, no, screw it. I want you to wear the craziest, wackiest stuff. Some people will come in wearing, you know, swim trunks and, uh, a, uh, a white shirt, uh, you know, a t-shirt and other people come in with crazy, uh, rainbow colored tights and mad dragons on their rash guard. And I think it's just a cool expression of, of whatever you want to wear. Um, but yeah, in, in general, people do get funny. When I remember when I went to a gym in uh, jeans and boots, um, I was actually told that I wasn't allowed to wear that. And I told him, well, I paid for the gym and there's, I don't own anything else to, to train in. I don't have anything else with me. I was on the road. So they let me in, but yeah, not, not all places will allow you to wear what you want. Hmm. Interesting. Sorry, Paul. Go ahead. Uh, so I was going to come back to strength and conditioning in combat sports. Hmm. So I remember 10, 15 years ago coming across a chap called Matt Fury, an American chap. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that no, would no. sell uh, a book called Combat Conditioning, and it was all based on Hindu push-ups and Hindu squats from mm. um, the Great Gamma. Am I saying that right? That's correct, yeah. And he would famously do a 1,000 of each to start his day. numbers. It was 3,000 uh, push-ups and 5,000 uh, squats. Yeah. Squats. Yeah. Don't yeah. we all? Don't we all start the day like that? I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I believe it, but yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, it's probably a bit of bullshit. I would exactly. imagine in some exaggeration. But how much, how important is strength and conditioning compared to understanding the moves sure. and the positioning? Because I appreciate one probably helps with the other. Uh, no, not necessarily. I, 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 yes, they do. Yeah, it's a good question. Technique is the king. Yeah. Without without technique, you have nothing. Um, it's sort of the way that I look at it is there's a driver and there's a car. Having a having the, a, a Bugatti Veyron with no driver in it or with a seven year old behind the steering wheel, it's not going to be very impressive. Likewise, having Lewis Hamilton behind a Nissan Micra would probably able would would probably be able to do some pretty impressive stuff but there's a limitation there. Yeah. So it, it, the, the two things are trained separately with the understanding that the one is the most important without a brain, the body is unable to function. And that's essentially what you're talking about when it comes to technique is the brain and, and kind of telling the body what to do. But what I always say is, you know, if you put Roger Gracie who's the greatest grappler of all time. If you put his brain inside of a seven year old's body, I'll beat the shit out of it. You know, it's not, it, it, it's not going to be enough. Um, so when all things are equal, strength kind of makes up for some of those uh, when it's close. The, the simple way that I put it is a, a lot of people think that um, technique equals performance. 
or mm. skill equals performance. And the reality is, of course, it doesn't. Skill plus physicality equals performance. So physicality is strength, speed, conditioning, uh, cardio, explosiveness, flexibility, every physical attribute that you can train. So if your skill level is extremely high, but your physicality is extremely low, then your, um, your performance may come out moderately low. If your physicality is extremely high, but your skill level is extremely low, then again, your performance may come out pretty low. Mm. Where, your, where your skill level is high and your physicality is high, that's where you have your elite grapplers. Yeah. And at that very elite, what is it that separates it? Is it, is it literally the physical preparation when you get to that top, top tip of the spear? Great question, yeah. Hard to say, isn't it? It's hard to yeah. say. And, and I think for each individual, it's different. Um, Jiu-Jitsu grappling is it's very complex. And I still need to talk to, to more top-level guys and ask them that question. I think, you know, I'm hoping to be able to interview Roger Gracie because, you know, I do, I, he is my, who I'm graded under and he's based in London. So I'm hoping to be able to sit down and chat to him. At one point, I want to ask him, what makes you the greatest of all time? You know, can you put a finger on it? And maybe you will, maybe you won't. I think there's a lot of things. I think for some of them, the physicality is, is really, really high. Um, but the technical ability has to be very high as well. And then the other things that are harder to quantify, I mean, technical skill is hard to quantify, but other stuff such as timing, such as yeah. instinct, such as fluidity, you know, the, 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 the speed of thought processes and the, the natural ability to do what's right. All of these things, they're completely immeasurable. Uh, or certainly not by computers of today's quality. Maybe when we have AI one day, that will that will be powerful enough to really break it down. But we can kind of just uh, summarize and theorize. Good that's question. Exactly, that's exactly what I was thinking. It's, it's the intangibles. I, I I would always think the tip of the spear in any yeah. sport. Is it's the what we like to call the uh, what we like to call the you know the X factor. Really, yeah. what makes him special? Yeah, I mean certainly. So I come from a rugby background mm. and when England won the World Cup and certainly when New Zealand won the World Cup, there was a lot of focus on being able to think clearly under fatigue and under pressure. So mm. you make good decisions. And I guess, and I've never done jiu-jitsu, so I'm, I'm guessing, and you can correct me, but yeah. those tiny, subtle movements that you are trying to pick up to see if there's an opening to put a hand or an ankle or a foot or a head somewhere to then put the pressure on is what you are looking for and you have all these movement patterns that are deeply ingrained into you so you're thinking right if this happens if a b and c happens it mm. will allow x to happen and i guess there's that ten thousand repetitions rule that the more you've done it the more you're able to pick up on that subtlety but also if you're fatigued are you able to then pick up on those mm. subtle actions or are you too busy breathing through your asshole mm. trying not to get pinned or submitted and to add something else into what paul's just said can you actually train and coach that mm. yeah yeah i mean great questions um i think that grappling is maybe the most complicated and again this goes back to what we were talking about in the first half of this this podcast which was 
my, my, my natural bias towards it, but I do genuinely believe again, trying to be self-aware and have a, have an out, a kind of perspective from the outside that grappling might be the very most complicated sport in the world for the simple reason that there is almost an infinite number of different techniques that can be done in different ways and small variations in them make a huge difference. Uh, so I think that that kind of that, that huge level of complexity and really I'm talking an incomprehensible level of complexity as someone who's been doing it, you get that done in Kruger effect where the longer you do it, the real, the more you realize this, there's, there's, there's an insane amount to this. Yeah. Um, and it, yeah, it is, it is wildly complex. I think it's hard to compare it to a team sport because there's more moving parts in a team sport. There is, and, and there isn't. There's, there's like more moving parts, but it's over this big field, and it's passes, and it's yeah. positioning, and it's you, you know it's much easier to track everything because you can just look at a bird's eye view, and you put dots on everyone, and you see how they run, and you put arrows, and in yeah. grappling, it's it, it it's very hard to explain. I guess um, you can't you can't see someone slightly moving their hip or put applying more pressure can be necessary. Yeah, exactly. And this is what it comes down to, which is a massive part of it as well. Like we're saying, there's intangibles, which is sensitivity, mm. the ability to feel someone. And it's something that I, you know, as, as a high level grappler you get, and it's something that I've always prided myself on and felt, you know, this, this is, this is kind of, I don't, what separates me from the regular hobbyists that I train with, which is, I can feel what they're doing or what they're going to do before they do it. Literally, you don't see it. You, you can grapple just as effectively with your eyes closed for the most part as you can with your eyes open, but you feel it. And uh, by grabbing onto someone's wrist, you can, you can feel where their elbow is, where their shoulder is, where their other shoulder is, where their hips are, where their head is. And, 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 and kind of all of that is kind of being modeled up into one big thing. Now, to answer the other question, which is can you train that these intangibles, yes, but you don't teach them. You facilitate them being learnt. Yeah, you show them and then to find it. Yeah, yeah. Do, you, do you, they you have got... to be there to be found in order to just coax them out in great, an individual? Great question. Maybe, mm. maybe, mm. maybe they're maybe they're not in everyone maybe they are yeah. in everyone and you've got to get it out maybe everyone has different levels of how deep they are i don't know i'd probably say um i'd probably say that it might not be in everyone uh there'll be some people but maybe it is maybe it's just uh maybe that person will just never be able to find it who knows mm. you know it's, they're all hypotheticals but yeah i think yeah. You, you can't teach someone these things a lot of stuff they need to learn from themselves so as an instructor you facilitate that with, you know, stuff like constraint-based uh, training where you're trying to get them. But, but then, you know, the job as an instructor is to go, look, this is what you're looking for. This is what you're trying to feel. Now feel it. Mm. I, think, so, as, I think gymnasts yeah. find this when they're trying to, when you try and do a movement, whether it's a snatch, a backflip, uh, um, something in jiu-jitsu, I'm not going to try and, <laughs> a move, but when you do it, it just feels right. Yeah. And, and then trying to recreate that, you go, no, that's not it. That's not it. <gasps> that's it. And I would imagine it's the same when you are going, oh, he's moved that. Bang! I'm in. I've done this, and I've I've got him in an arm lock, and he's done. Mm. 
or whatever. Yeah. And that, that proprioception and that biofeedback. Mm. Uh, yes, there was definitely an innateness to it. Injury will have an impact on proprioception and understanding where things are when it comes to feeling people in different positions or understanding where your body parts are. Mm. Oh, it's fascinating. It's yeah. Yeah. And it's I like mean, blindfolded chess whilst you're having your head. And crash. also maybe knowledge yeah. of your opponent and what injuries they've had and what yeah. their last match was and how, the, how, how they lost the last match or how they won the last match. It, 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 there's a lot. It must be like poker as well because they could bluff. <laughs> I'm going to bluff with my hip and then get you with my ankle. I mean, yeah, I mean, I could talk about this stuff all day. Uh, but but in ter- when you start bringing on the psychology, there's, I mean, psychology is such an interesting mm. subject and it's something that I've always been interested in. But yeah, you can do stuff like, uh, you know, people pretend that they're, tired but then they're not or you give up a position and you want them to move here so you act like you know one the, the you're, way that you're the, giving away a pawn aren't you exactly it it's sacrificing a, it's, it's, yeah yeah it's a gambit yeah so one of the ways that i teach it in, in it's very hard to move someone where you want them to be it's easier if you know how to trick them into going there themselves yeah. if they decide to go there. So what I may do is yeah. put someone in a room in a corridor and just leave one of the doors open ajar. If it's fully open, then, then they're going to realize that something's up. Uh, but if it's, if it's locked closed, then it's, they're never going to go there. So, you, you know, maybe there's just a, maybe it's slightly unlocked or maybe it's just a little bit ajar and they go, oh, this is my decision to go this way. But of course, that's, that's where I've directed them to. So <laughs> there's many levels. And actually, we, when we were talking earlier about things that uh, are special, like wrestling and hunting, the other one that you just brought up, which I'm also a fan of, is, is chess as well. Yeah. <laughs> you know, chess... Yeah, you're thinking four, five, six moves down yeah. the line. And chess is chess is an interesting one. I'm interested mm-hmm. in chess a lot. I'm not very particularly good at it, but I do love it. Chess is uh, chess is a, a special um, a, a, a special magic game. It is the greatest game, the most balanced game that has ever been created. And the way that we and it, it go, it's going back to to what we were saying about when you asked me, you know, why is grappling so good or why is wrestling so special? And about how the vernacular, soup, you know, it transcends the the art itself and into into mm. popular uh, colloquialisms. And we have that with chess as well. When you've got someone dead to rights, there, you know, you've checked mate them, or it's a gambit, or you've pawn, you know, you, you, you've sacrificed sacrificing something, and all of these they all come from uh, they or, or a blunder. They're all coming from chess. Um, chess is really interesting and. Uh, yeah, getting into chess and, and 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 kind of seeing chess through the lens of grappling, and then being able to look back at grappling through the lens of chess is something that I really really enjoy doing. I use the chess analogies a lot when I'm teaching. I would extend that outside of sport, and when you were talking there in terms of um, tri- tricking people mm. into doing something that you want them to do that they didn't want to do, but they end up doing anyway. Mm. It's for me. I, my immediate thought was parenting. Okay, <laughs> that's that's and Paul, Paul maybe think the same yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. In terms, I, of, I, I, I can't speak on that. I, 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 I know, but that's I know. Obviously, a lot of our listeners kind of yeah. do, are 
um, our parents as well. And yeah. that's how it works a lot of the time because if yeah. you tell someone to do something, they're not going to do it. Yeah. But if you convince them in some other way to do it themselves and it be their decision, you've won. That's it, yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a book by Robert Greene called 48 Laws of Power. Of course, yeah. And um, yeah, <laughs> there's quite a bit of that in there as well. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure. Yeah, but, but yeah. So there's, yeah. there's a lot of psychology. There's there's a lot that goes into it. Yeah, and, and you tend to be no gi, don't you? Is that right? That's right. Yeah. And is that how? Why no gi as opposed to gi? Yeah. So I I trained for many years in the gi, and I essentially stopped training after I. Got, I mean, I already kind of wasn't interested in it when I got my black belt. Um, but then I barely trained in it since then because I hadn't. I didn't have to. Um, I yeah. This is an argument I have with many people. Um, I don't like the gi. I don't like it for some very simple reasons, practical reasons like I. Uh, I get very hot in it. It yeah. kind of messes your fingers up more. I feel that I'm a bit more injury prone. I didn't like the direction that the modern gi game was going with a lot of wrapping of lapels that I felt were quite just kind of aesthetically unpleasant and weren't pleasant to do. So I just didn't like it and I gave up on it uh, or, or I just decided not to train it at all. But really for me, the reason why I love Nogi so much is because it's pure and i was going to say that because yeah. the gi seems like you've got a lot of leverage sorry i just jumped in and cut you off yeah no you're right yeah and 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 very put very simply put you know and and there's lots of folk styles of wrestling that involve some sort of um external outfit the yeah. the, the the mongolians grab onto the shorts and onto the strap over the back i was saying yeah. the icelandic have these belts the irish collar and elbow you grab onto a, a lapel and an elbow uh, but, but for me, wrestling is pure, um, and it's naked essentially. I mean, for those who don't know the word gym comes from gymnos, which is a Greek word for naked gymnasiums were places where people just get naked with each other. And, uh, yeah. and, and, and so, you know, the way that I like to train is with tight, short shorts and a tight rash guard. So I'm not naked, uh, but for all intents and purposes, it's I good am. As, yeah. It's as good as naked, yeah. And, and that's how I think everyone should train. And it makes it very pure and very human. Mm. Um, yeah, it's just, it's just the only thing, the only advantage that you have, the only thing that you can use is your opponent's body and nothing else. Mm. I like that. I, 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 think, I think there is a bit more purity to it. I think if you're using someone's clothing, and, and I appreciate it's all part of the technique, but I just think if it's just you versus the other person and you're not, no external stuff, I think there's more purity to, oh yeah, he got lucky, grabbed one of the power and was able to rip it across my face. See, I've always, I've always thought that in terms of, let, let's just go back to um, the more visible side of grappling. Let's, let's talk about judo in the Olympics. Yep. That yep. everyone's seen. By the end of a, the, the, the You've got a belt here. You've got things are yeah. flapping open. You've got so many things you can grab, and that they do use. Mm -hmm. Which, if you if you were naked, let's say it, it wouldn't. Uh, well, maybe it would make a good spectator sport. Well, it doesn't happen but, in MMA, <laughs> does it? it? So if you look at UFC, no, yeah. they are in. So some are in shorts, but Conor McGregor and Khabib are then much more like the the yeah. tight shorts that yeah. you would wear. 
Mm. Yeah, I mean, so the interesting thing about MMA is, is the difference that the gloves make. Your inability to grapple properly, your, yeah, your opponent's ability to grab onto them, you know. So, so actually the gloves, the gloves make a huge difference and it's really, really difficult, the grappling gloves. Uh, so even then, it's kind of the, the purest form of fighting would be two guys bare-chested in tight shorts um, going for it, yeah. Yeah, mm. fantastic. Yeah. Um, I've, I've got one more question written down. Hit me. Which I haven't been able to find and I've looked. Okay. Um, that may, maybe it was staring me in the face. Um, okay. Why raspberry eh? <laughs> There's no way that you have not found the answer to that because I, I mean, I, I do a lot of podcasts. I, I reckon that I've probably been on, I, I would say, and it sounds ridiculous, but I genuinely believe, I reckon I've done close to 100 other people's podcasts, not my, including my podcast, but at least kind of far exceeding 50, 60 podcasts. Uh, and every single one will ask me that question. Okay. Can, uh, I, <laughs> can I defend myself? yeah you can this is a genuine genuine thing so whenever i'm i say researching in the loosest possible sense yeah (laughs) i never listen to other interviews that people that's fine fine. other people but i listen to content and things that themselves have put out because i don't want to be clouded by that so i apologize no 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 no. i'm only taking the piss uh because every single podcast i've asked me that question i'll I'll delete this do you know what i'm actually going to delete that (laughs) no you're not it stays in i'll I'll tell you anyway uh no censor i'll tell you anyway uh which is very simply put it's a very boring story uh but very simply put is i have always been likened to some sort of ape and I really like raspberries, and it is as simple no, as that. No, I don't. I don't. I and, don't really. and and it, it sort of rose. We were we were uh, brainstorming for a, a name. It had to be unique. It had to be something. Basically, the first uh, I was put into a, um, a magazine, the first issue of a magazine that used to exist called Jiu-Jitsu Style, and they had an interview with me in there, and he mocked up an interview and a profile. And he said, uh, nickname the gorilla because I was known for my grips. And I thought, God, that is the worst nickname I've ever heard. <laughs> no, like, you know, I mean, it's, it, it's just, it's just terrible. So I thought I need something that is unique. I need something that is, that if you Google it, nothing else will come up apart from me. So we went through loads of different ones and, and, uh, I can't remember. I wish I wrote down some of the other ones that we had and, and then, and then I think my friend of mine said raspberry ape and I go, I like the sound of it. I like the sound of it. I like red raspberry. Yeah, it's, it's good to go. But then what I do with it is uh, I would tell a different story because it was ambiguous enough that I would tell a different story every time someone asked me. So we've had many iterations of the tale. The current one that I do tell if I'm trying to have someone on is... Make up a new one. Go on, make up a brand uh, I can't, new one. No, I've got a really good, I've, I've got a really good one uh, that I use and I've been using it for years now. Um, so I kind of settled on one and it's a, it's an adaptation of the Harambe story. Uh, but instead of Harambe being under child, obviously instead of Harambe being shot, someone throws some raspberries into the enclosure and he goes for the raspberries and and they save me. Uh, and a lot of people (laughs) tell this story and they go, Oh my God, that's amazing. I go, yeah, it's a complete bullshit. Uh, or if I, it's not that you blow raspberries in people's faces whilst you're on the mat then. I I don't, I don't, I don't, I should do though. I should do. No, I really like, I really like raspberries. Yeah. Yeah. 
Fantastic. Yeah. Which, am I am I the first person to actually ever just be really disappointed by the fact it was just the like raspberries? Oh, I imagine that everyone uh, is disappointed in the in, in the actual truth of it. Yeah, I like raspberries, and it sounds good. Yeah, yeah, which, is, which is quite nice because now people can find you because they'll find you at the raspberry ape. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, they can find me at raspberry ape on. Like I said, anything that you search for raspberry ape, you will find me. Yeah. When is your next fight or are you, or next match? Yeah, so I'm kind of, I haven't competed since I had my pector surgery. I'm considering uh, um I'm considering uh, there's there's the London Open next week. I've been away for the last month uh, traveling and working and uh, doing seminars and stuff like that. So my training hasn't been great, but I'm kind of thinking about maybe just jumping in. So potentially next week, otherwise I need to find some time to be able to jump back on the map. But you know, it is it, it is the horrible thing with being sort of busy with seminars but also i do a lot of commentary work and a lot of commitments to that sort of stuff and <laughs> it's always on the weekend and they always end up being the same time so uh yeah i'm hoping to i'm hoping to be able to i mean i'm in the process of trying to open a gym which is also taking up time and uh i'm hoping that once that's open i can sort of stop traveling so much and stay and train hard and, and start competing a lot more before i get too old yeah is that going to be in london yeah, that would, yeah. Uh, the gym. The gym will be yeah. just outside of North London. Yeah, Hertfordshire. Okay. Cool, fantastic. Thank you so much. No, my absolute pleasure. It was uh, really, really great chatting to you guys. Thoroughly enjoyed it.